Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is brought to you by Blue Chew. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Van the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We're ready to go or what? Uh, hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are... Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling! two-man power trip of wrestling if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always on the two-man power trip i'm joined by my tag team partner the one and only jp john paz and jp to join us a little bit later on here with today's interview featuring a former nauu national champion an army veteran and a man who competed in the 1968 olympics for the united states in greco-roman wrestling the one and only bob roop joining today's broadcast and before we get into a little bit about the interview with Bob Roop we want to let you know that Bob Roop will be joining us at the Markout at the Meadowlands convention on April 7th the day of Wrestlemania that's Sunday April 7th 2019 at the Meadowlands Hotel in New Jersey just about 20 minutes away from MetLife Stadium where Wrestlemania will be emanating from this year and if you've heard us talk about it a little bit, we're going to be ramping up in a very big way in the next couple of months as Markout at the Meadowlands stands to be a stand, almost probably a standalone convention going on on the actual date of WrestleMania. And we're featuring a very unique wrestling meets football theme as our headliner is the one and only voice of the Attitude Era, good old JR, Jim Ross, and also to include... Our super ticket guests featuring Stan Hansen, Tully Blanchard, and Tito Santana from the West Texas State football team, as well as Dangerous Dan Spivey 
and the natural Butch Reed also just amazing football players turned wrestlers and we're going to be kind of honoring that association of football meets wrestling at Markout at the Meadowlands but also throwing in here as a feature guest Bob Roop making his first ever tri-state area convention appearance so throwing in another natural athlete that made it in the ranks of professional wrestling but obviously with a little bit more of a closer tie being in the amateur wrestling side of the wrestling world. And it's all coming down at Markout at the Meadowlands. All these great names that will be in attendance. Also to include some vendor guests that we've announced thus far, including a reunion of the WWE's version of the FBI featuring Nunzio, Chuck Palumbo, and Johnny the Bull Stamboli, as well as Val Venus, as well as J.J. Dillon, the Bullet Club's Chase Owens, and the Beer City Bruiser, also from Ring of Honor, joining us at Mark out at the Meadowlands. It's a convention that John, myself, and our friend Nick from the Captain's Corner are putting a lot of work into. So if you are going to be in town for WrestleMania on April 7th, 2019, please hit up M-A-T-M-C-O-N, which is M-A-T-M-C-O-N.com. Find out all the ticket information that we've got available right now. See what you can do in terms of if you want to try to get a room at the Meadowlands Hotel for this event. But it's matmcon.com for all the event information that we've got. Thus far, we're still a few months out, so there's going to be more guests and there's going to be a lot more details added into this mix for this convention. But right now and running through tomorrow, December 1st, we're offering a special $10 admission as well as a $100 super ticket special where you get an admission ticket as well as a photo op and an autograph from the super ticket guest, which so far there's five out of six announced. And we're kind of holding that sixth one close to the vest as uh, we're getting a little bit closer to this mark out at the Meadowlands convention. But we're thrilled to have Bob Roop in as a feature guest. And Bob Roop, I mean, this is a long interview, folks, so I I'm going to keep this very brief. But Bob Roop, he's held major singles titles in both Mid-South as well as Championship Wrestling from Florida. He competed in basically every major territory of his time. And in the mid-80s, he portrayed Maha Singh in Kevin Sullivan's legendary Army of Darkness stable for a time down there in Championship Wrestling from Florida. But it doesn't even give any bit of credit to the in-ring career of Bob Rubin. You know John. He breaks it down in a major way with Bob so we're not going to beat around the bush much longer. We really want to push you to join us at Markout at the Meadowlands, which is April 7th, 2019 at the Meadowlands Hotel in New Jersey, about 20 minutes away from MetLife Stadium. So if you're planning on coming to WrestleMania, then you can take a little pit stop and head on over to the Meadowlands Hotel, get some autographs, get some really cool pictures taken, and join us for, as JR would say, a slobber knocker of sorts. As uh, we love this football beats wrestling, but then you got wrestling meets wrestling and you got some great entertainers on the bill and it's going to be one hell of a time if you can join us at Markout at the Meadowlands, matmcon.com for more information and as always stay tuned to our Facebook page as well as the post that we have on Twitter where we announce uh, some more of the details that will be coming available for this show. So with all that being said, strap in for a long one folks. JP is going to take us the rest of the way with this interview. So let's hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business. And let's get this show on the road to the man, Bob Roo. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. 
Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno San Martino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, an MAUU amateur wrestling champion. He was a NWA United States heavyweight champion. He was also an NWA Florida heavyweight champion, as well as an NWA Florida tag team champions four times over. He is the one and only Bob Root. Please enjoy. Right. Joining us on the line is a former Mid-South North American champion, a four-time NWA Florida world champion, and a two-time NWA television champion. You may know him as the All-American. He is Bob Roof. Bob, welcome to the two-man power trip. Well, thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Foremost, you know, you've been everywhere. You've wrestled. You've done so many things. But what are you up to today? We haven't seen you or heard from you in a while. What is Bob Roop up to nowadays? Well, a while would, uh, not totally, but uh, in terms of active, 30 years I've been retired from the last time I stepped in a ring. Uh, the last, oh, 15 years or so, I've been, I've gone to Cauliflower Alley Club in Vegas and uh, the reunions in Mobile for the Gulf Coast Association and uh, various wrestling-related things. Scott Teal has a reunion every year. I think that this year was his sixth or seventh year. I've been able to go to that uh, a few times, not every time, but uh, of wrestling-related things. Uh, last year I went out to uh, uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, for the, the uh, Pro Wrestling Association out there. Uh, Johnny Mandel was running a great deal, a great promote, or a great museum out there, and you know, these museums where they're uh, trying to uh, show respect by remembering pro wrestlers. I mean, that's the epitome of, uh, uh, of respect. And it's also one of the few ways that guys like me who are retired can feel um, some, you know, really late and not and, and totally unexpected thank yous and payback from fans. That's really sweet. It is great that a lot of the old school guys and really the throwbacks and the real wrestlers of the day can you know get together and talk about the business and talk about the history. And I like that you know you got a place like the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame and the Cauliflower Alley Club and different things like that that really highlight wrestling and and not so much of the uh, sports entertainment aspect uh, that we see today. Is there yeah. any? Is there any? You know 
not I wouldn't say any problems you have, but is there some distinction that you definitely make with with wrestling of today and basically pro wrestling of, of your era? Well, they are they are different. Uh, last uh, July, I was visiting a friend of mine, Dr. Red Roberts. Uh, he's uh, an accomplished my, his, Dr. Michael Brown. He's an accomplished psychologist, one of the top forensic psychologists in the state of Florida. And we went to a wrestling show that was being uh, one of the talents was one of the guys from uh, we trained in our wrestling school way back in the late 80s who was still active. Uh, he was in his early 50s, but he, you know, he looked good. And that's not so old for a wrestler. I saw guys in England that were 70 that were still getting in the ring. So um, we went to a show. The reason I'm telling you this is we went to a show, and we were invited back into the dressing room, and there were about 60 people in the dressing room, including, oh, maybe a dozen women that were not. And don't get me wrong. I'm not uh, misogynistic, but... Um, there were women in there that obviously weren't women wrestlers, so I was curious about the makeup, and we gave a little, uh, Red and myself and uh, uh, Larry Simon, uh, uh, Boris Malenko's son, uh, were there, and my son Kyle, and uh, we uh, we gave a little, you know, good luck and, you know, have a great career. And they were doing a TV taping, so... Um, we later when we were in the audience, we were, we were like introduced, and and that was nice. But back to the dressing room just for a minute. I later found out that the reason all those people were there, each one of these wrestlers had an agent, and also had either a physical trainer or a dietitian, or and the the women in most cases, and it wasn't in all cases, uh, were makeup people, and uh, so everybody had a posse, <laughs> like that movie mm. that HBO series Entourage. Um, although those guys were friends, um, all these guys had a posse, and that that is absolutely diametrically opposed to what we did. However, that being said, I have no problem with it. You know, you go out there in the ring, although the dynamics might be different, the philosophy might be different, there's still bumps, there's still uh, the chance of getting hurt, there's the, uh, the necessity to learn psychology, to learn how to get an audience to engage with what you're doing, uh, all the skills that it took to be a great pro at, at my time, even with a little bit different uh, maybe philosophy towards the end game, is, uh, is still needed today. And, uh, and here's another thing. A lot of the old-timers want to complain about the, the new guys, but I don't agree because these guys are given much less time to do it usually. They don't have point. We used to. I won. I won an hour and a half match. I mean, I doubt if any of these guys today will ever have a chance to do. You know, you talk about learning on the job. Uh, in 90 minutes, was an established pro. Someone like Harley Race, for example, when he's in his prime, it's like a seminar for a, a college freshman being taught by the emeritus college professor about the wrestling business, and you get an hour and a half. <laughs> Definitely hands-on lessons. So uh, the kids today, or the young men and women, are not getting, um, in many cases, not getting that kind of, uh, of feedback because the business has evolved so much that hopefully the old timers are around to, uh, in the in the you know in the wings to advise them on you know perhaps ring ring uh, ring talent or you know ring moves, ring max uh, philosophy and and uh, and coach in a sense, but. 
the business has changed. That doesn't mean it's changed for the worse. It's going to change again. It might go back to the way it was. Um, but uh, I don't have any problem with it. In fact, a lot of the guys, the old-timers, what they don't appreciate is by, by the business having radically altered, we are the members of a vanished era. I call it the road warriors, and that's not Animal and Hawk, buddies of mine, but the, the actual tag team group, the road warriors. But we were the people that beat up and down the highway to a match to match, being on the road in some territories, you'd be on the road all week. Um, my, one of my last jobs, uh, we worked a week in Georgia. It was out of Atlanta, championship wrestling, or uh, Georgia championship wrestling. Uh, we we work a week in, in Georgia, and then we work a week up north in Michigan, mostly Ohio, but in Michigan too. And so you'd be gone from home a week. Uh, and, uh, you know, so... Those days are those days are probably I'm not sure exactly how these guys uh, you know what their 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 time away from home is but I anyway most of it is I don't think is in cars which makes a difference too but for us old timers we have all our stories and not there's no new ones coming along because that era's over so you know our stuff is gold and they don't look at it that way but I always look for a silver lining so. Uh, Okay, I, I look at my clock. I spent 10 minutes to let you say anything, so I should have. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, you're talking about how the difference in the locker room is and different things like that, but you don't have a problem with, so to speak, kayfabe being dead and that kind of just being thrown by the wayside? Uh, not really, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I always I use a similar analogy that if you – put the head up, a uh, gun up to the head of, uh, say, 100 wrestling fans, and you ask them, okay, I need the right answer from you, and uh, if I get the wrong answer, I'm, you know, you're going to get shot. Is wrestling real or not? I think under that kind of stimulus that 98 out of 100 of them would have said, no, it's not. Um, I, I saw many situations where uh, fans in Miami would uh, – say hi to me, and I was a heel on my way in, and they'd say hi. they say stuff like, uh, you know, from a distance, because we had to be careful where we parked our cars. And But from a distance, or maybe inside the building, you'd pass by, and they'd say, ah, Bob, you're going to get your butt kicked and all that. But they were fairly friendly. Uh, later that night, maybe a two hour and a half or so later, uh, I'd be in the ring, and those same people would be following me at the mouth wanting to kill me. Uh, and, you know, they... But then the next week, when I came in, if I saw this, there's a lot of regulars in Miami. That's why I use them. I'd see some of these same regulars again. This was their social outlet for the week. Um, I see the same people, and they say, hey, Bob, yeah, you, you were lucky last week, but you're going to get your butt kicked this week. Well, if they really believed what I'd done last week, they'd be waiting with a shotgun. I mean, you know, so that's my my philosophy on um, the kayfabe thing. And besides, what good does it do? You can't put a toothpaste back in a tube. McMahon, very wisely, it was a very smart move because it saved him billions of dollars, um, got out of uh, legitimate athletics into sports entertainment and no longer had to pay state uh, uh, tax, 10% state tax to every athletic commission in 27 of the, of the United States. 
he saved himself billions of dollars by doing it. I don't blame him at all. I do the same thing. Um, now, uh, old timers listen to this, or, or, or when they do listen to this, they're going to say, "Well, next time I see back him in the mouth or something." But it's just reality. Plus, how could you? I tell you, here's the crime. Here is a really sad, sad part. That guys a generate only a generation or two ahead of me, certainly before the internet. When they retired, they were just absolutely phenorked. And I tell you why. If they were a heel, they couldn't go out they didn't they couldn't come out of character in public because then they weren't K Fabian. So they had to be, you know, when they were in public and they came across people said, Oh, there's there's Bob Roop and you know, I've been a heel, I would ah, get a get the boy, get away from me. You know, as opposed to having people come up to you and say, hey, you know, Bobby, you've been retired for 10 years. I still think it's one of the funniest, one of the most incongruous and funny things in the world to have someone shaking hands with me and beaming at me and shaking both my hand and theirs and just beaming at me and saying, sometimes these people are big executives today. You know, I mean, they're VIPs. Shaking hands with me in my old decrepit stage and going, Bob Roo, my dad and I used to hate your guts so bad. <laughs> and they're beaming at me and smiling at me. You know, if you're listening to the message, you know, if you're a bystander, don't have any clue of the context, you know, you're going, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this message. You know, is there a ventriloquist out there or something? But the thing is, it allows us to keep our foot in the wrestling. But I've been retired for 30 years, and yet I can go to these places, and I'm on Facebook. I got back on Facebook a week or so ago, and I find all these people who come out who, you know, they show fun. Not everybody, but a lot of them show, you know, some people say, well, you were a hack or whatever, but a lot of them show fun uh, memories, and that's the epitome of respect. What more could a, what more could a, a pro wrestler want? in their retirement, to get old and still be remembered, still have relevance with people who are, you know, 50 years younger than that. And you can go to an association where where fans and wrestlers are together, and they come up to you and they tell you what they thought of your performance, what they thought of, how you affected them. I mean, the most touching one to me is always a young man who said, my dad and I were never close until we started going, I got old enough to go to wrestling matches with him. You know, it's like the, the typical one they use in sports is a dad taking his kid to a baseball game. But the, for wrestling fans, there's a lot of them saying, yeah, my dad and I got close, or, or, or me and my dad and the rest of the family, we got close going to wrestling matches together. Well, that makes what we did. Up and down the road, bumps and bruises, being sore, you know, this, our own family lives being very short-changed by our choice. I mean, this, this isn't poor, poor, for the pitiful me. We made the choice. and uh, uh, But there were sacrifices, big time. You know, being you miss your kid's birthday, you, you're working on Christmas, Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, you're working. You're not at home with your family. You're, you're, you have to work on your marriage anniversary. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, of sacrifices. But you know what? Having these get-togethers today where you can reunion and you can communicate with the people who allowed it to happen. People want to say, oh, the fans are just something. No, without the fans, there wasn't us. We, we couldn't have done it without the people who paid our, our 
made our made us a living by coming to see us wrestle. We couldn't have done it. So the fans are just as important as the wrestlers. Now a lot of boys don't want to hear that. I don't care. Uh, it's the truth. And the other thing is, by having that I'm a big star and you're just a fan um, attitude when you're meeting with these folks, it puts a gap between you. There's a barrier between you. It's unseen, unspoken, but it's felt. And I don't like that. If we're going to meet with, if I'm going to meet with people, I just assume we're all the same. We all have one life. You know, if you're spiritual, we have our one spirituality and one death. All of us have the same. And so we have so much more in common than we have uh, as differences. And anybody that comes up to me that wants to be, or even to say, well, I think you're a hack, but, you know, you're here, right? I guess I'll get you off the ground or whatever. I don't really mind because they're there, aren't they? Uh, people are entitled to their opinions. And I always say it, uh, you know, some of them are more informed than others. And uh, some of them, uh, uh, I say they're like, I can't use the word, but I'll say they're like anal orify. Uh, some of them stink more than others. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that's my attitude about that. I don't, I, I don't believe in blatantly. Oh, I, okay. Let me add something that maybe make people, people uh, in the business feel better and fans. I don't like the word fake because what we were doing wasn't fake. It was staged, yes, but only the ending, uh, only the finish. Uh, if I went an hour and a half, we did. How did? How could Harley and I know what we were going to do for an hour and a half? I mean, we'd have to get together for a week before the match to practice everything. But to go out there and to be able to ad lib and go with the flow and be picking up on the the vibes, the feedback from your audience, and to just be able to pull from a repertoire move. And Harley was a was a leader. He was a heel. He was a genius, you know, I mean, an hour and a half. So when they told me before the match, I thought, oh, my God, you know, I might have to quit the business. I, I've got about 10 minutes worth of material. Uh, how am I, you know, what am I going to hmm. repeat that nine, nine times? So I went out there, the hour, the hour and a half went like that. And, uh, you know, it's just, that's talent. Um, I don't care, you know, and you combine the talent that it takes and the nerve that it takes, especially for heels, to go out there and, and raise people to the point of wanting to get out of their seats, but not quite. Having people uh, run amok is the epitome of bad business. Guys want to start a riot, I wouldn't hire them. I was a booker for four territories. I didn't want riots because old people and older folks and children get hurt and they don't come back to the matches. Uh, it's too scary for them. So it's just the epitome of bad business. However, to have fans angry to where, uh, you know, you make your TV the next week to blow off some of that heat so they're not disgustedly angry. But then you want to, if the anger is, is true heat, not cheap heat, but true heat, then uh, you, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you enhance it, do whatever you, your judgment tells you that you need to do to keep it live because the object is to get the people watching that television to go and buy tickets that week and come to the arena to see the live show. So it took a lot, you know, I always heard stuff about wrestling. It's just, it's usually from, definitely not from wrestling fans, it's from non-wrestling fans who are looking for something to look down on. And that might have to be with the way they thought about themselves. I don't know why people need to go around looking, you know, looking for something to 
to complain about, but uh, I, uh, you know, once I got into it, I knew that I was nervous as hell going out there, and I watched guys, I, on my first night, I saw a 70-year-old, I haven't even wrestled yet, I saw a 70-year-old man hobble down the uh, Mario Galanto, I think was his name, uh, hobbled down the ring. This was back in '69. Hobbled down the ring with uh, uh, with his cane, and I mean, the guy had I mean, sitting in the dressing room. I thought he was somebody's grandfather, and I'd never met anybody until that day. And, and uh, that was my first day I just even going to a match. I saw this guy hobble down the ring and get in the ring and just turn and look at the crowd. And they all screamed. I mean, they were yelling, screaming at him. They wanted to kill him. I thought, well, I don't know what that guy's done, you know, but, uh, you know, I don't think Charlie Manson would have got a more displeased reception. And so I thought, well, whatever he did, this guy can, you know, here I am just freshly out of the Olympics, and this guy that I could look like I could break with both hands behind my back um, goes down there and has this crowd going going berserk. Now, earlier, let me to... to uh, um, clarify that or to give it uh, relevance. I had earlier gone down the ring just to be introduced. All I had to do was manage to get in the ring without tripping over a ring rope and fall on my face. Walker, you know, stand there and raise my hand, and I wasn't even, I think, sharp enough to even wave to all four sides of the ring uh, and then go back to the dressing room, and I was sweating, nervous just doing that. So here's a guy, uh, you know, coming down there and, just getting in the ring and, you know, like that old Johnny Valentine stare, just staring at the people when they got up and scream and yell. And, you know, it's called heat. You know, he had heat. He had serious heat. And uh, getting it is one thing. That takes a lot of skill. Keeping it is another. That takes even more skill because you have all kinds of baby faces, uh, big, big stars, that the reason they got to be stars is a lot of heat got expended from heels that put them over. And there are people who like to eat heels. I'm not going to name any names. I don't believe in disparaging anybody who's not around to defend themselves. But there were guys that would eat, eat heels like peanuts. And a guy that spent a year or two building some serious heat would uh, lose most of it, at least in that town, uh, one town, in one night. Uh, depending on how, you know, how he was treated. Uh, you know, if the, if the baby face doesn't sell anything you do, uh, making you look like you're just ineffectual and also exposing the business, uh, then, and then beats you too, well, you're, you're, you know, you're dead at least for a while in that town. So, uh, yeah, I have a lot of admiration for, for uh, guys who are doing something I didn't know how to do. Olympics and amateur wrestling was completely over. This was a completely new business, and my background had nothing to do with, with the dynamics and the, the parameters of this new occupation. Uh, actually, it was a hindrance because guys were afraid of me uh, who didn't need to be. I wouldn't have hurt anybody, but um, I had the shooter label, and I did, I did stretch a few marks, but I didn't break anybody's arms and legs and hurt anybody, put him in a hospital. So uh, I did, I did, uh, I was tough on, I was tough on a few guys. There's one, there's one on YouTube where I, I look like the bully of the century. Uh, I guess this poor guy. But uh, it was this circumstance. 
or it would never it would never would have been on, t- on TV if it hadn't been. Uh, so I I got to stop and check and make sure you're still there from time to time. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you you know you mentioned your amateur wrestling and obviously you were highly su- successful. How do you make the jump to pro wrestling? I know you obviously said you you turned pro really in 1969. So how'd you make that transition? Well, it was, uh, I came back from the 68 Olympics. I had about uh, two semesters left, or two, I think they were terms, or something, it doesn't matter. I had, I was going to graduate. To graduate in June, I was married, I had a young child. I needed to start making a living. And so I was looking for a job. And uh, one of my teammates had run into Larry Hainimi, uh, who had uh, evolved into Lars Anderson. And Larry had gotten, a, a, you talk about the break of breaks, when he first, he was from Minnesota, and I think Gene and Ole Anderson also were. And, and when Lars came in, uh, they might have been the ones that made him Lars. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. I, that, that'd be a good thing for a historian to tell me. I'll check it out on Facebook. But uh, they, looked, they saw this big, young, nice-looking kid, and they took him, and they, they saw a situation to have some six-man tag matches, and they grabbed Lars. Well, he's in with Gene Anderson, who's been around for 30 years and one of the most accomplished pros. Uh, uh, you know, if he'd have been a really, uh, he was bald and, and not real big, if he had been a big uh, Lex Luger type, uh, the guy would have been a world champion for 20 years. But great worker, and, you know, what's most of these other guys, you know, nothing. Uh, not, Lex is still alive, but it's still got a knock on knocking. But uh, Jim was a great worker. Ollie was a very a good worker. And uh, these guys, uh, Ollie was legitimately uh, tough. And I think Jim was too. Well, they took Lars. And they started having these matches on top. So in his first two years, Lars, this is what we, now we're back to where he ran into my teammate. My, I'm still in college, and he ran into my, uh, my teammate. And he told my teammate that he'd been in the business two years and he'd made 75 grand. This is 1968. Uh, he'd made, made uh, $75,000. He was driving a brand new Cadillac. He had, uh, um, a, well, he had a Rolex watch and some other stuff on. But he also, he told my teammate that he had made two trips to Japan and uh, one trip to Australia in those two years. That's what got me. I wanted to travel. I had done a, a little bit when I was in the Army for three years before I went back to school, and I uh, had some uh, to not international, uh, although six-day Olympics, Mexico City, but uh, but traveling to the United States to amateur wrestling, going to dual meets in different parts of the country. I had a, I had the travel bug, and I wanted to travel. And, um, that's the main reason I got into wrestling. It wasn't for the money. Uh, I got it because I wanted to travel. And uh, I left territories where I was making good money if I didn't like the territory. And that's not a brag. It's a stupid, really. But, um, you know, I should have, I should have, well, I'm not going to look back and say should have, could have, because I'm happy where I am today. But uh, here talking to you, Chad. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, um, it was just that, that the teammate, um, told me about me running. I knew Larry. I knew uh, Lars, Larry Hainimi. We'd both been a, a trying out for the 64 Olympic team in New York. I ran into him up there. That's the only time I ever saw him, but I knew him. So um, when I heard that, I thought, well, man, 
it just turned out our, our college trainer, a guy named Bob Spackman, um, knew Sam Muchnick in St. Louis. St. Louis is about 100 miles from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. So through Bob, we've got to set up a meeting with uh, about, uh, I think about two months before I graduated. I think I just won, only one, I took All-American by taking third and fourth and the second place in national tournaments, the national AAU, amateur athletic union tournaments. But I won only one. It was my, my last one uh, in 1969. I won it. 220 Greco-Roman, I won a national championship, which, you know, after taking uh, placing, all Americans nice, but you want to be in the United States, man, if you're not number one, if you're nobody. So uh, anyway, we went down to see uh, Sam Muchnick, my, myself, and a guy named Larry Kristoff. Larry had uh, been on the 64 and 68 team, Olympic team, and uh, was so, I don't know, five or six, eight times uh national AAU champion, uh, and he, he later, uh, after 68, in like 69, 70, 71, before 72, uh, Larry, Larry took second in the world a couple of times at the World Games, which is an off-year Olympics. So he was, t- I mean, he was, he was great. He was better than I was, but um, he was, uh, he was top. Well, the two of us went down to see and uh, check in the, um, about going into pro wrestling. And what was funny, we're sitting in front of Sam Metznick's desk, and I his office, he's got all these autographed pictures, like Mickey Mantle and, you know, all these great, at the time, autographed pictures on his wall. He'd been a sports writer, I guess, for one of the St. Louis newspapers before he became a wrestling promoter. And um, his office, you know, memorabilia and all that kind of thing is very, very impressive. Sam himself was uh, impressive enough. He was... Uh, he was older. I mean, no, he was, don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking him, but he was, you know, he was just an everyday guy, but he was obviously a VIP. And he, uh, he found out we were, that Larry had already graduated and I was getting ready to graduate. <laughs> As you know, we're only about three minutes into the conversation. He says, well, well, I wouldn't go into pro wrestling if I were you guys. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Funny, huh? And, uh, well, both of us, you know, both. I don't know why Larry wanted to. I knew why I did. Um, I wanted to travel, and I wanted to at least look at it. I had a degree to fall back on if I didn't like it. So anyway, we, we let Sam know that we were kind of set on our ways. So he said there's two places, uh, there's two promoters that like, that the that the, uh, the, the, the boss man likes uh, amateur wrestlers. One is Vern Gagne in Minnesota, and I, I knew it Vern from his amateur days. And the other one's Eddie Graham in Florida. Well, I've never heard of Eddie Graham, but I'd heard of Florida. I had been there for spring break in high school. And uh, so, uh, you know, they could have said, uh, uh, there's, and then there's a promoter in the Florida. It's, uh, you know, uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So I would have said, well, <laughs> I like horses, so I'll go to Florida. Uh, and uh, because I grew up in Michigan, I didn't want to go to Minnesota to work. I wanted to go to Florida to work where it was warm. So uh, Larry and I both flew down to Florida uh, a few weeks later. We were uh, we were uh, guests of the promotion. We went to the matches in Tampa at Fort, Fort Homer Hesterly Armory. And this is where I saw Mario Galato. We hadn't 
we hadn't had a match or hadn't even had any training yet. We hadn't officially, we were still, I was still in school. Larry was still, I think, maybe coaching over at SIU Edwards. I'm not sure what he was doing, but he was out of college, uh, whatever he was doing. But um, Larry actually worked that night. Um, I think they did it on purpose. They uh, they came up with a story that somebody didn't show up, and uh, they got him in the ring with uh, Gordon Nelson, who was wrestling out of the road. As, uh, I don't remember. You might know. Uh, wasn't Mr. Wrestling. It was, I don't know. Wasn't a grappler. I, I don't remember what his name was. I'm sure some of your listeners out there would know. But uh, anyway, he got in the ring uh, with Larry, and they did a, I don't know, seven or eight-minute match. And Larry, of course, had never had any training. And that... It was not looking back. It's actually hilarious because, and I'm not Larry. If you listen to this, don't come beat me up. It's not because it's not because uh, he didn't know. But what they did, I think they were kind of ribbing because most of the pros don't have much use for amateurs. Um, I think they were kind of ribbing. But uh, the things that you know, Larry was listening to. I don't know if the referee was too short or not. That to ask Stu, but. Uh, uh, the, the, to Gordon and whoever was telling him, they kept having him make heel moves. For example, Gordon would go behind him and take him down, and Larry would go with it. And then they tell they had him go to the ropes to get away. Well, Larry was the baby face, you know. Baby faces don't do that. <laughs> so, so they just I mean the, the the fans were so confused. Now the really really funny part of it. Larry Kristoff could have taken on every guy in a dressing room one at a time or maybe even two at a time and flattened every one of them in about five seconds in real life. But in the ring, he looked like a wuss. So, yeah, it was uh, the fans were rather, rather confused. He got, he got some polite, uh, I guess, sort of uh, appropriate uh, response just from his background, I guess. But I don't know. I don't remember what they did. But anyway... Um, Larry decided not to not to follow up. We went to a, a motel room we, that we were staying. Jack Briscoe was just getting a, had gotten a big break down there, and he he came with us because he he had the NCAA championship amateur background, and he he came over with us. And and you know Larry asked him about the money. That's what Larry was concerned about. And, and Jack said, uh, "Oh, he said you'd probably expect to make." Now this is 1968. They didn't probably expect to make about twenty thousand dollars the first year. Well, Larry was Larry was kind of a mark. Well, we both were, but he he was he was listening watching the guys on TV, flashing their big pinky rings and smoking fifty dollars cigars and all that, and making interviews and thinking that everybody was making a fortune. And of course, that wasn't the reality of the business. But uh, uh, so Larry was turned off by that fiddly to him. That was a fiddly amount of money. To me, I didn't particularly care about the money. As long as I wasn't making anything at college, it was whether we, my wife and I were living. It's, you know, if we could go out every other weekend and buy a pitcher of beer to share, um, get somebody to look after our little boy, that was a big deal. So the idea of breaking in was, I think I, I had a two, in fact, I know I had a $200 guarantee when I started in 1969, which translated to today would be about, oh, I mean, maybe 400 bucks. That was great. You know, I mean, it was more than enough to pay to rent for a nice apartment, had a pool uh, for it. I mean, it was it was high times for me. Uh, I'm middle class by 
uh, upbringing and, and choice and uh, in terms of my values. And so, you know, it was great for me. I loved it. Uh, the travel and, you know, within a month, I'd gone to Puerto Rico and the Bahamas. And, you know, the first time you go, that's pretty, that's an exotic, you know, it's pretty pretty cool. After you've been there a few times, you go, oh, my God, I've booked in Puerto Rico again, or I've booked in the Bahamas, oh, God, who did I piss off? But uh, anyway, uh, yeah. See, I warned you, Dan, about, you know, getting an old pro started, you started to get it stopped. <laughs> Hey, that's uh, no problem. Definitely love hearing about the Florida guys and the Florida territories and the guys like Jack Briscoe and, and the Grams. Is that kind of like a real learning lesson for you transitioning from amateur into the pros and then you get to you know sit under the learning tree, if you will, from a guy like Eddie Graham or a guy like Jack Briscoe, some of the biggest and best names in the business? Yeah, it, it is. Uh, Jack was uh, Jack and I became fast friends when I was a baby face. After I, I, I switched field to the heel side, I we couldn't hang on. But we traveled together. And, uh, you know, Jack's gone now. I'm still friends with his brother, Jerry. I saw him at uh, the uh, Waterloo Hall of Fame reunion this past year. We had a nice talk. Jerry um, received the uh, Distinguished American for State of Florida Award. And in our 30-minute talk, he never even mentioned that he's a real humble and, and good-hearted guy. But Jack was very helpful. Um, you know, he would, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the business, but, you know, he would watch, he'd watch my match and he'd give me advice uh, about what I could do better. And uh, within a few months, I worked against him in the ring, which is, you talk about a thrill, uh, once I turned heel. And, uh, but, and Eddie, Eddie was, Eddie was, very beneficial in terms of learning the most important hold in the wrestling business is, is the office hold. And the office hold is not being a stooge and going and carrying coffee for promoters. The office hold is being able to go to whoever you, you feel most receptive. It might be the booker. Uh, and you don't want to tee off the booker by going over his head. But if you have a relationship with someone in the office that, uh, maybe you're at a party or get together of some kind, and you you titillate them with the idea of a good angle that you know about that they don't know about that they can use you in. Um, then it's that's the office hole is getting your ideas for yourself and preferably with uh, you know the person you want to work with. Steve Kern had the amazing. Uh, I mean, in a tragic way, but we're talking about making, you know, uh, making something out of that tragedy. Steve, Steve Kern had the, uh, his dad being a POW for seven or eight years and, uh, and missing Steve's young life from the time I think he was 13 till he was 20 or maybe 11 till 18, something like that. Um, he had that to integrate into an angle. And he checked with his dad, and his dad told him it'd be okay with him, anything he could do to help him um, in his career. Well, Steve came to me. He picked me to work with. And that was a big boost in my career. And I don't, I'm not still sh- sure to this day why he did pick me. I was young and hungry like he was, and maybe he felt like um, we would fit together. We'd have some matches together, tag teams. Maybe he just felt that 
you know, would be better suited for what he had in mind. And together we presented it to the booker, and uh, they went with it, and it turned out, it turned out about, oh, I don't want to say exponentially, but 10 times hotter than they expected it to be, just by a freak of accident. And uh, uh, I went out there and knocked Steve's dad and uh, called him a coward. And uh, because he got captured twice and didn't get away, I was healed, you know what I mean? And I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never do that today. I'd never, as a booker, I'd never let anybody say that kind of thing. You know, you don't want to get people killed, and your talent especially, but anybody. But uh, we were young and hungry, and I made it, I came up with this interview. I thought practiced it for a couple hours to make sure I got everything I wanted to say with it. I, know I, had two, I knew I had two minutes. Uh, Gordon Sully would introduce me. I had two minutes, and I just had a set speech that I made. And uh, well, Steve was supposed to, he had already been on there earlier in the program, and it showed him and reuniting with his dad after eight years of separation. It was Walter Cronkite. It was on the evening news. His father was came off the plane alone, and he got about 10 feet out away from the stairs down from the plane, and, and Steve ran out on the uh, concourse and hugged him. You know, it was very touching. It was very moving. And uh, he and Eddie Graham were out there talking about that. That was the set up the angle. And then I got on there later and said, well, I'm... I'm a, I'm a veteran myself, and I spent my time, and I have an honorable discharge. I never got captured. Uh, the first rule of military conduct is I will not be captured by the enemy. The second rule is if I am captured, I'll make every uh, effort to escape. And um, so in my mind, uh, this this, uh, this Colonel Kern, uh, he he fought both those those laws twice. He, he, he disobeyed them. He got captured twice. He got captured in Korea, too, I think, and uh, one was somewhere before Vietnam. And, and I said, in, in both cases, not only did he get captured, he didn't know what it means. He went up, but he didn't, get, he didn't get away. He didn't escape. So, my mind, someone like that's not a hero. He's a coward. Now, there was a presidential candidate that stole my speech and repeated it a couple of years ago about John McCain. But, uh, mm-hmm. we, yep, exactly. We were pro wrestlers, and that was way, way over the top, way over the top, even for pro wrestling. Uh, well, here's what made it so effective. Steve was going to come out, and he was going to be mad. So, you know, logically, he was going to be mad. You know, because I think I was out there with Orton uh, when I when, when I made the speech. We, I don't know. I think we, yeah. We, I don't, no, I don't think we had a match. But no, I was out there alone. I take it back. Anyway, he was going to come out and beat the crap out of me and then make this impassioned speech about don't mess with my my dad. What happened when he was running out there, he hit his ankle against a stanchion that keeps the TV camera uh, from tipping over. You know, it's got a little uh, stationary, not stationary, but a camera on wheels. You can move around, but it's easy to knock over. So they have a big circular ring around the bottom, so if it does get tipped, it doesn't go all the way over. Those cameras cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Well, he, he was running so close to the camera, he forgot about that ring, and he banged his ankle against it. He thought he broke it and uh, at the time, and he, he had to watch himself. So you see this thing move by, this, this form move by the camera, and then he just dives at me right over Gordon Sully's desk, and I'm, he's on top of me back there, 
and and uh, I'm throwing pencils. Like Gordon has a bunch of pencils, and I'm throwing them up in the air because I know the camera can't see me doing it. The can the desk is still in front of us, and so Orton's came out. That's why nobody was there. About Orton Jr. and Senior came out, and they pulled me out of there. But when Steve got up. He, he wanted to be mad, but he couldn't. He was in too much pain. So he's crying, or at least he's got tears in his eyes, and he's got real, real pain in his voice. He's not having to work, act to do this. He says, Rube, my dad is suffering enough. You want to pick on somebody, pick on me. <laughs> my dad suffered enough. And then he couldn't say anymore. I'm back in the dressing room of, of he finishes. Jim Barnett, who's a very, very experienced uh, promoter, I've worked in, in Australia for him three or four times, and he'd done things there in Adelaide. The guys were out in the street um, uh, during the main event. They were out in the street in front of the theater running around a city bus doing some kind of crazy thing and fire and everything else, and he'd done all kinds of wild stuff. And he's walking back and forth, and he's going, oh, my God, Bobby. What have you done? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And Jody Hamilton, who was a very experienced heel, assassin, and great booker, great guy, experienced heel and knew heat. He knew how to get heat. Him and, him and Tom Ernesto left many small towns at 90 and 100 miles an hour with people chasing them until they couldn't, you know, until they outdistanced them. He got some stories about getting heat because they, they didn't, they weren't scared of anything. And Jody said, Bobby, he said, you better arm yourself, son. He said, I'd advise, I'd advise uh, something with a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of, a lot of rounds. And then I realized, you know, I, once I had these two veterans going bananas, I went out the next day, I bought a 357 Magnum pistol and a shotgun. <laughs> Uh, I never had to use them, but it was serious. My girlfriend worked at the uh, at the uh, McDill Air Force Base. She came home. She said, "Bob, what did you do?" And I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "There were guys. She was uh, a waitress, and she said I searched some guys. These guys, this table of of guys, of Air Force guys, I served them beer. I heard them talking. And they were saying we ought to find that Roots house and throw a you know one of those big frag grenades that's for tanks." Uh, throw one of those to his front glass window. <laughs> well, I heard that. I was more than a little alarmed, to say the least. So, yeah, uh, the good old days. But um, I apologize. Before I left Florida for the last time, I, I, I insisted. I said, if you ever want me to come back here, I insist you give me some TV time. I don't really know if they ever put it on, but I know that they did at least pretend to be taking it. I apologize. I had gotten smarter by that time, and I, I apologize to Colonel Kern that I didn't, I didn't uh, tip anybody off by saying that he'd been on a, in on it, that he'd given me his, his okay. I went to see him myself with Steve before I agreed to do it, and he, he you know, he was, he had been so husked out of every his life essence by what happened in Vietnam. That there wasn't much of him left. He said, well, I don't care what you do, guys. Just go ahead. It'll help Steve. It's fine with me. You know, there wasn't much of him left. But he, uh, he, uh, you know, even with his permission, you know, it was, when you think about it, it was a total 
slap in the face for every wounded veteran or anybody who served, any of the boys with PTSD. It was a, a real insult, especially because, you know, it's one thing when, you know, a politician does it to gain power and, and does succeed in doing it, then he doesn't have to apologize. But when you do it for commercial ends, it's pretty low. And, you know, it took me until years to, um, for years to, to get over it. Um, I want to, if you, if you don't need to interrupt me, uh, let me go back to that to talk about one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. about, uh, you talked about the Cape Babe. Here's a, here's a, here was a thought that, that apparently nobody thought about, or if they did, they didn't care. When they exposed the business in 1989 on that uh, show, uh, you know, now it's sports entertainment and all that, what they did is they told people that everything you've seen uh, was all rigged. It was all made up for you. And that means that all the all the problems that, that being a wrestling fan might have brought to your life, uh, you know, were differences of opinion of even, you know, of enraging a, a, a viewer. It could be a man or a woman to where they have such anger that they take it out on their family, uh, to making people unhappy. There might have been people who killed themselves. You don't ever know. They were close before it happened, and they got so despairing by what they, not by my angle, but by, you know, all the different angles, all the different things. I mean, we did things. We took people who made girl wrestlers look like somebody's visiting mom on Mother's Day and pile-drived her and carried her out on a stretcher. We did some horrible stuff. And then you, you're telling, uh, you know, you're, you're enraging people, and then you tell you tell people, well, it was just all an act. What you do there is you put Heel's life in extreme danger. Think about it. You put their life in extreme danger when they say, that, you mean that thing that, you know, we were, we were all looking for that guy to kill him. You know, and our lives were just totally messed up. That was all put on. That was all created to make us that way. I got divorced because of that thing. Or I smacked my kid because of that thing. And now you're telling me it was all fake? It was all made up? And not, not fake. I told you, hey, I don't like that word. But it was all created. It was all planned. It was a horrible, horrible plot. That's why... I like the idea that fans do know this is not real, folks. What we're doing is we're suspending disbelief here. We know we are when we come in. Just like when we go to a movie, we know that, you know, that alien thing, as far as we know, doesn't exist. It pops out of some guy's chest. We know that's not. But we're going to believe it when we're watching the movie. We suspended our disbelief, and we're truly, truly terrified by this, and of course, when we uh, when we go back out on you know on the street, it'll you know it'll quickly fade away as soon as we the, the film you know comes goes dark. But uh, while we're watching it, we're totally engaged. Uh, I want I want I don't want wrestling fans in there believing uh, everything they see is real because uh, the stakes are too high. You know, if, if they if they take it to heart, 
especially children, youngsters, would go in there. I mean, if they were believing that, that guys were so vile and evil with some of the things they do, what kind of values? And I'm not trying to sound like, although I was a scout leader for 10 years when I retired, I, I do believe in, in, you know, in youth being served in any way I can. Also, I went back to school at age 64 to be a special ed teacher, and uh, <laughs> I was older than everybody in school when I got my first job. But, uh, you know, with the idea of, of serving youth, uh, yeah, that's not, you know, that's not the, that's not the kind of image you want, you know, you want them seeing. And that's why, but again, uh, if I was a parent, and there was extreme, you were watching the kind of TV that featured extreme violence and blood and all that kind of thing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to watch it, you know. Uh, unfortunately, with both parents working and where society changed, uh, that became, uh, that became uh, uh, impossible. I used to watch a, I had a friend who was a, uh, she was a babysitter or daycare person, I think is a better word. And she would bring in, they, she'd bring in kids. They, the parents would drop them off on the way to work. She'd set them down in front of the TV, whatever was on. And uh, I was, one night I had a long trip. I stopped by there just to, I was, I was going to sleep in the, in the wheel. I stopped by just to uh, crop out on her couch for a couple hours. And uh, uh, one woman brought in a little baby, and I mean, like eight, nine, ten months old. She put a pillow out there, put it on her stomach, walked to watch the TV, and she went off to get food for him or whatever. And I think this, I think while the show was on, the news came on, and some kind of horrible uh, murder or something was being featured, and they were showing all kinds of grisly stuff. And here's these two and three and five, six-year-old kids watching this stuff. And I man, that's not good. Uh, but that's, our society's changed that way. The, the, the thing, unfortunately, the thing it does, it drives, drives kids to their childhood in ways, you know. You should be able to be a kid for as long as you, you know, as you can. Once we get, when we grow up, we in, in life, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're going to both feet firmly in life. Um, the stuff just keeps coming, doesn't it? Hey, let's pause one second right here before we get back into today's episode and tell you about our sponsor, Blue Chew. Now, you don't need to be a genius to know the benefits of using Blue Chew, but for those of us that need to be enlightened, how about this? It's the first ever chewable, so you don't need to go to that pesky doctor's office for a prescription. It's got the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, and it's fast acting, and you can use it on a full stomach. And don't worry about this, it comes in very discreet packaging, so your pesky old mailman isn't going to know what you're going to be doing and taking care of business in your bedroom later tonight and if i had to give blue chew a grade i would give it a geo as in go to bluechew.com and use the promo code power trip and get your first shipment free and pay only five dollars shipping again it's bluechew.com b-l-u-e-chew.com use the promo code power trip and take advantage of our very special offer now i suggest you get over there to do it before i end up buying the entire stock because using blue chew outweighs any of the other alternatives that are out there and make your weekend perfect and get a little blue chew in your life and why don't you go and spice up the finer things of life <laughs> i was gonna say uh just to thank you because you said that as far as being an adult i wish you know i can go back and uh, not have those two feet firmly in the ground in in adulthood if you will but yeah you know we're talking about all these great you know old school wrestling memories and 
but really kind of focusing a lot on Florida. I feel like that was a huge, huge territory and a huge part of your career. I mean, the, the heel heat that you got from Steve Kern angle is just great. Uh, that angle, if you will, was crazy. It is funny. Trump and, and McCain is very, very similar. It's funny. I guess Trump might be an old school uh, uh, CWF fan. But I had to also mention down there, Funks, Terry, and Dory. Obviously, you've had some NWA World Title matches against Dory. Uh, Dusty Rhodes, Dick Murdoch. I mean, there's so many great characters and guys and guys to learn from in that Florida territory. It's actually crazy that all those awesome guys are in Florida all at the same time. Well, it was, and, and it was beneficial to me as a booker because of those, those different guys. You know, I saw Jack and Dory work uh, our Broadways uh, a dozen times, great matches, and it wasn't always the same. I mean, they didn't do the same thing every night. If they worked an hour in, in Miami and then the next night in Jacksonville, they did another hour, or uh, there wouldn't be the same match. Uh, they just were, they were craftsmen. They weren't uh, road, road actors and or acrobats or whatever, and so you know they because each crowd's different, and you need to you know you need to use the audience to. Uh, you know, I was very similar, but the timing would be different. The moves might be similar, the timing would be different, but that was a different that was a different kind of thing. Jack and Jack and uh, and Dory, uh, not to knock Dusty because he's gone, but I don't think Dusty ever had a match more than ten minutes in his life. Or maybe he did, but not much longer because there were guys, Dusty and, and like, I saw a picture today of uh, Jimmy Valiant. Great guy. A really sweet guy. I went to a school up there, and the school was about 20 miles from where my uncle's house in Virginia was, and I didn't know that. I went by there. I was visiting. There was a reunion down there. I went by a school, and Jimmy stopped the training and had two rings, about a dozen kids in there, or young men, and uh I don't think there are any women, but, you know, and he, he introduced me, and he just was so uh, pleasant and complimentary, just a real gentleman. And But working with him was an absolute nightmare for me. I mean, uh, because he was a boogie-woogie man, and, you know, it's a lot more show than go. And my, my uh, MO or my working style was uh, engaging physically. I mean, Using holes, I don't mean shooting, I'm, but I mean, uh, uh, how do you react to a guy turning and shaking his butt at you? You know, when you're trying to be a serious wrestler. And the same way with Dusty. Dusty would do a series of 30-second uh, acts and then pause after every 30 seconds to get his, just like one-liners, to get, uh, you know, usually end up with him giving you the elbow or something in the middle of the forehead. And then he turned and gave his appreciation from the crowd. Uh, and some of those people I found, now there were guys who were much better heels than I was that were very good at working with guys like that. I wasn't. To me, it was always a nightmare to work with that. Dory, or I saw Dory last year. It was great to see him. Just uh, communicate with him first via Facebook but yesterday, I think. But um, him and, and Jack... Well, so, and then you had the intermediate. Terry could do both. Terry was down there, too, as champion. And so, uh, I don't know if you know the history, but Funk, Dory Funk Sr., uh, Eddie Graham, and uh, Bob Geigel in uh, St. Louis had a, uh, or wherever, Kansas City, wherever, I think maybe Kansas City, uh, Bob Geigel, they had uh, a threesome 
they had a pact. Uh, so when, when, they went, when they went to the NWA convention every year in Vegas, they had a threesome, a small block, uh, that voted as one. And look who the champions were. Uh, Dory Jr., uh, Jack, uh, Terry, and Harley. And then Crockett got in there with Flair. But not before those guys had their run. They all had a run. And that's because when they went to the NWA conference, with Jack, uh, you know, the three, the Funk, uh, Graham, and Geigel uh, triumvirate had a block of votes, and all they had to do was work on getting a few more guys to come around, more promoters to come around to vote for whoever their champion was going to, uh, whatever champion. And Eddie would, Eddie would use whatever uh, machination he, he needed to to try to get uh, things passed. I have a suspicion, I don't know this for a fact, but I know that Jack Briscoe was very unhappy as world champion. And my one of my suspicions why is that I think Eddie Eddie managed to get one of the ways he, he was able to get Jack the championship. I might be wrong, but uh, one of the ways he was able to get uh, Jack the championship was by telling the promoters they didn't have to pay him 10%. Uh, the champion was supposed to get 10%. I think another... And maybe two of that was to go to the booker for the champion. Uh, but uh, I think he, he told Jack, he told him Jack didn't have to get that. I don't know. He was unhappy for some reason, but he was definitely, I knew him well enough, although we hadn't been close for a number of years. I knew it, you know, and I knew he was, he was not a happy camper. I don't know. It might've been the stress and strain. Well, there's another indicator. Uh, they were having a conference one year and Eddie Graham called me. And in my home in Tampa, he said, uh, do you know where Jack is? I said, no, I haven't seen him. Uh, as a heel, there wasn't any reason I, I should have. But uh, he said, well, he's, he's supposed to be here at the conference. Every year at the NWA conference, the, the, the champion was not booked to wrestle anywhere because he was to come to the conference and, you know, schmooze or whatever with the, uh, the guys who put him in there. And they could talk about, you know, maybe, I don't know if they asked him what, what he thought or, I don't know, but he was supposed to be there. Maybe this was a poster boy, but um, he didn't show up. Well, why wouldn't he? Um, I I try to do investigative thinking, and I was thinking I knew he was unhappy, he didn't show up. Well, what would that be? It could be a protest. He, wasn't, he was upset about not getting paid the way he should have been. He was making more money than he ever made before, but still, you know, it's a integrity, uh, personal self-respect kind of a deal. You know they're screwing you, and uh, you go to them about it, and they say, well, uh, we were told, you know, by Eddie that, you know, we didn't have to, so we're not going to. And, uh, you know, that that put Jack in the middle between Eddie and his own ambitions. And the, the, the and there's a bottom line on that, and then again, this is not knocking anybody. Um, this is a very drastic and, and cruel-sounding statement, but it is merely a statement of fact. The way that Eddie Graham ended his life is an indication of what that life meant to him. And by the time um, uh, Eddie started Jack, or didn't start him, but he gave him his first break, he, he made Jack world champion. He started me. He He's the one that took Dusty from being tag team partner of Dick Murdoch and turned him into Dusty Rhodes and, and got him launched for wherever else he went. I think he was 
he might have been as hot somewhere else, but he was on fire in Florida for years. And um trying to think of who else. But the three of us, uh, by the time we our careers had uh, furthered to a certain point, nothing would have nothing to do with it. Um, um, that's sort of a telling uh, statistic, isn't it? Uh, that you know, none of us wanted to go back and work there for him. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, back to your original question. Uh, Working with guys with a variety of styles, both in the offices of Booker, in terms of matchmaking and planning on how to um, finish those matches, you know, how what kind of effect you want to leave, also has to be absolutely coordinated with what you're planning to do on TV. Those two things are married. Um, and, uh, you know, it created, it being forced to think in a different way. Booking Dora, booking uh, Junior and Jack is much easier than booking uh, Dusty. Uh, with Dusty, it was very, very hard to have a rematch. Um, his 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 uh, uh, tremendous, overwhelming popularity and almost idolatry uh, from fans. Uh, they just kept feeding him um, heels like peanuts. He was. I give you an example so you don't think I'm just, this is not sour grapes at all. I admire Dusty's career. Uh, he was uh, he very, very accomplished. He took a gimmick and whatever, doesn't matter how he got it or what he did, but he did he did very well. And he wasn't a big detriment to the wrestling business. He didn't kill it with his work. But uh, one time in Miami, Billy was working, or uh, Dusty was working with superstar Billy Graham. Uh, he beat Billy, and then uh, something went afterwards, and um, Gary Hart was managing, let's see, I believe it was Mongolian Stomper, Ox Baker, me, Dick Murdoch, two Samoan guys or Polynesian guys. I don't remember. It wasn't Alpha Seeker. I don't remember exactly what their name was. Good guys, and I'm sorry I, you're still here in this. I'm sorry I don't remember your names. Sometimes I don't remember my own, but... Uh, there were and Slater. Uh, let's see, did I leave anybody out? There's like, oh, and Pac uh, Song. Think about it. Ox Baker, Pac Song, uh, Mongolian Stomper. I wasn't, uh, I, I, I wasn't at the heights of my, and I never reached the heights. Those guys did, but because I didn't go any, I didn't go to big, I didn't go north. Uh, but uh, he ran in every one of us. Every one of us ran in the ring uh, after that match. And got the elbow, boom, to the forehead, you know. You go in and go to punch him, you grab you by the hair, give you the elbow in the face or the forehead, and boom, off you go. And we all made about two or three passes at him, slid back in the ring two or three times. So he not only beat Superstar Billy Graham, but then he, in effect, beats the crap out of the rest of us, too. Well, you know, they, Miami was a good town. It was hot, and it was hot enough that by keeping up, we do a trade-off. Heat and popularity go hand in hand, but you can't have one without the other. It's very hard to have both at full volume or full capacity at the same time. Uh, so Dusty took a lot of heat, and the promotion. He didn't, Dusty didn't order him to do it. The promotion did that. 
uh, whoever was, I don't remember who the booker was, but they, that was what they wanted us to do. Well, that took a lot of heat off the heels. Uh, probably, I don't think I was working in the office yet, but probably what they did, uh, I would remember being associated with that. Probably what they did um, was they did some something outrageous on TV the next week. Uh, but uh, that's what I mean about, uh, you know, with, with Dory and Jack, I remember once in uh, in, in uh, Jacksonville, Dory and Jack had been doing a series of matches where they would go uh, 58 minutes, and they would both be really, 59 minutes, they'd both be really, you know, dragging after that, you know, great contest, up and down, back and forth. Not a lot of running around high spots, but action. They didn't lay at holes too long. And... Uh, uh, with a minute to go, Jack would get to figure four on uh, Dory, and Dory would sell it like crazy, like he was killing him. And, and But he'd be close enough to the ropes. Like as, a, as, a, as the seconds are counting down, 59 minutes and 55 seconds, 56, 57, 58, on 59, he'd grab the rope. Well, the referee would ring the bell, you know, would, would shake on Jack to let go of the hold. And then the... the the, you know, the bell would ring, and uh, 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 the match would be over, and Dory would still be champion. So they did a thing in Jacksonville where they got to the 59 minutes, and Jack got to, got to hold on him right in the middle of the ring. And Dory saw it like Jack's had it on it two or three times, plus he hurt his legs some other way. So that Dory's looking like, oh, my God, he's going to have to give up this way. This time, he's going to, the crowd's going, going nuts. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was pretty excited myself. I obviously wasn't, I know I wasn't working out because I didn't, I don't know any of this was going to happen. Terry was on the card, and Terry ran in, ran up the turnbuckle, and uh, came off with a knee across Jack's throat or something. And, uh, you know, just so that looked like, it, of course, didn't hurt him a bit, but it looked like it killed Jack. And, uh, of course, he got to be cute. Well, Dory was still the champion because you can't win the title by disqualification. So the nuts. They were packed around the ring. Nobody got in the ring, so they weren't totally nuts. They hadn't gone insane. They just were um, maniacal. Uh, you know, they were pretty insane. Uh, but they were packed around the ring. Now, here you got Dory, who, you know, because consummate pro, he's got to sell that leg. He can't just, like, run out of there full speed, he's got to sell that leg. And they're packed around the ring, and the cops couldn't even get down there. So, and the aisles, I'm telling you, the aisles packed people that come from upstairs. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm watching, I'm thinking, oh, okay. I, I, I told uh, Orton or somebody, go get the rest of the boys. We're going to have to go down there and get these guys out of there. And Terry propped Dory in the corner the exit corner and he went to the kind of a couple feet away from the corner and he went to the other side of the ring and he came charging across the ring and he grabbed the top rope or the top of the turnbuckle and used it to propel himself. He leaped up into the air and he was coming down. Now the ring stairs are right below it. He's coming down right in the middle of that crowd. It's all waiting. Well, they scattered like quail. I mean, I was, I was young in the business, I mean, six, seven years. And I was tremendously, tremendously impressed. 
They scattered like quail. What he did was he turned them from a mob back into individuals. And then by them scattering like that, it gave the cops time a chance to get down there and to Dory, uh, Terry helped Dory out of the ring. And we also, all, all, the, all, the, all the boys were ready also to go down and help if we needed to. And, uh, but the cops were there, and by him changing that mentality, Terry changing that mentality from the mob psychology back to individuals worried about their own, you know, if some gun's going to land on me uh, mentality, uh, uh, they were able to get out of there. But I only tell you that one, so supposedly John that story, to make a point. That was one run-in and one match. The difference between Dusty and eight run-ins in one match, and, and like repeatedly, like in different shows, uh, major difference. You see what I'm talking about? In terms mm-hmm. of how yep. take, what it takes to keep someone hot and dry is, uh, I'm not blaming them for what they did with Dusty. They probably figured it wasn't going to last forever. That you know they were going to make hay while the sun shines, and then they go and they could always go back to Jack and Dory and that philosophy. Of, a lot of it was called a lot of it. Want to call want to call it old school wrestling. The old school wrestling was grab a hold and lay on it. The Johnny Valentine thing later in his career, grab a hold and lay on it for ten minutes. Let the guy get back to his feet after take three or four minutes to get back to his feet, and then you start the the top wrist lock back and forth like guys trying to. And then you pull a guy's hair, baby face hair, put him back in the hole that he was in for 15 minutes already. And all you've done is pull his hair one time, and you're about to have a riot. And Johnny Valentine was expert at that. And watching his matches was very informative, too. And when he was asked why he worked that style, he said his career progressed. And as he got older and got hurt and, you know, and this older and less uh, capable of, he said he watched himself on TV, and anything he saw that didn't look real, he quit doing. So, uh, you know, that's good advice. Who says made his whole career on being believable? Not on being flamboyant like Buddy Rogers or, you know, Gorgeous George, which is not, that's not a, nothing against him. I didn't know George, but I did get to know Buddy Rogers. I really liked him. He was a gentleman and great talent and flamboyant. He created a whole era. He was a first high spot guy. But uh, one of the first blonde, well, George, of course, was blonde hair, but once Buddy did it, uh, a lot of people, because Buddy also, he wrestled a different style. He, and, 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 and George did a pseudo, yeah, I, I'm not trying to be offensive here, but pseudo swishy, you know, I mean, the hairpins and the valet and all that. And he, but, you know, he was a very accomplished wrestler. He'd been a, he'd been a, a journeyman or, uh, not, that's not the right word, an artisan, I think, uh, in the ring before he got the gimmick. Uh, but Buddy was, uh, but Buddy and, and, and uh, Lucas were polar opposites. You know, Buddy was, uh, he, he could go, but he was a lot of show and uh, a lot of theatrics and showbiz, and he was great at it. Lou was all uh, go. Uh, what you saw was what you got, the basic black trucks, black boots, uh, that's all. Uh, what you see in the ring is uh, all believable. It's not, not a lot of running. I don't remember ever seeing Lufus at the ropes, you know, like for a high spot. I worked, I was fortunate enough to work with him a couple times, and I was uh, I was thrilled. You know, I mean, I wasn't, 
I was experienced when I worked with him, but I was very happy because oh, he was in his 60s, I think. We had a good match. I mean, it wasn't, there was nothing at stake. We weren't, it wasn't a championship title or it wasn't a main event, so didn't have any, like, pop going in. But it was a good, solid match, and to me, it was a real pleasure to work with him, you know, to, um, to uh, you know, I think, well, he, you know, he complimented me afterwards. I'm not complimented, but he said good match, and I think he meant it. I don't, Lou, Lou wasn't, uh, Lou wasn't much of a smoother, smoother. He, uh, he said what he thought, uh, so... And but I never got to even see Buddy work except on video, of course. But he uh, he was a retired in South Florida. He used to come to our shows and hang around. Anything wrestling, he, he and his wife would come to and we'd see him. And one night we were in the uh, elbow room in Fort Lauderdale. We we're having a show in there. Uh, it was the main th- uh, main bar and where the boys are movie back in the fifties. And uh, uh, he came in with his wife, and it was like everybody in the bar was black and white, and he and his wife were technicolor. They do that in a movie once in a while, and that's what it looked like because he was he had on like a I don't know a bright colored suit and his blonde hair, and his wife had on a beautiful white or light colored dress or whatever. They just were so glamorous, you know. A bunch of we had a small this Global Wrestling Alliance was a small company. We didn't have any big stars and you know, while we're doing a show in a bar in Fort Lauderdale. So, obviously, we don't have a lot going for us. But um, Buddy would come around to those shows, and, you know, he was very, I mean, to all the business, all the guys are the boys. It doesn't matter whether you're Curtin Racer or you Buddy Rogers. We're all in the same club. And that's nice. And for any fans that are listening to this, I'd like to say that you're also part of that group uh, because... Um, without you, it's like when I taught school, I tell my kids, it's not you and me against each other. We're in this together. I wouldn't be here if not for you. If you weren't here, I wouldn't need to be here because we're here together. We need each other. Uh, what I need from you is respect for yourself and for what rules we need and for others and for me. And I'm going to respect you, and that way we're going to have a good day. Uh, and... It's the same with with fans. When fans feel that that there's because they didn't wrestle themselves themselves wrestle, that they're somehow removed from um, the wrestler himself or herself. Well, so are we. I haven't wrestled in 35 years. Am I still a pro wrestler? Well, in name only. If I had, a, I can barely get in the ring, much less do anything once I'm in there. So to be with fans, especially ones that are uh, folks who are, are complimentary, well, let's put it this way. For anybody listening, if I run to you in the future, I'm your fan. So we have something in common because without you, I couldn't have done it. Nobody, well, I wouldn't have had a job. A lot of the guys want to look at, um, and this is something that I'll hand out. Any of you boys that don't like it, too bad. If you believe your own publicity and you believe that there's people who paid you uh, paid to see you wrestle and made you a fortune, you believe those people beneath you, you are a mark. You're a mark. Just like the carnage people who come and try to win the teddy bear by throwing a dime on a plate or whatever, you're a mark just like those marks were. Because without the fans, without the guys, it's another term, jobber. There is no such term 
terminology in the wrestling business. It was brought in by guys who had been wrestling fans who got in the business and they thought it just became part of the vernacular. It's a denigrating, disrespectful term for guys who go out there and put other guys over. What they're doing is they're helping that other guy's career. They're helping, they're helping whatever the promotion is. And their job, even though they're getting beat, as a heel, I got beat nine out of ten times, even when I was the one making the matches, because that's the way it works. The good guy can't win. I can't lose all the time. The bad guy can't win very often. Otherwise, people aren't going to come. It's not winning and losing. An argument between two champions over who was the better champion. Well, it's easy. Find out how many how many main events they were in, and how big the buildings were. Uh, get some algorithms, crunch the math. Who drew the most? That was the better champion, not who we boy tough. Bret Hart against Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair? Are you kidding me? <laughs> you, see the, mm. you see the most stinking match in the world. Uh, two of the best shooters in the world. Uh, the match would be incredibly boring. I talked to Stu Hart's uh, sons about some of the stuff that went on in that basement down there. And a lot of times, one of them, Stu would be with uh, old Dory Dixon or somebody like that. And they'd grab a hold and they both of they'd each have the other one in a hold, but they weren't able to to sense their hold. The other guy was blocking them and also had a hold on him that was what was blocking them being able to and sometimes they would be resting back and I mean resting in a term dubbed R E S T, like wrestler. They would be resting one another back and forth trying to gain an advantage for ten minutes. Well, if your fans watching that, that's boring. That's boring as that. Hmm. Those matches absolutely stink. So, I mean, there was no room for shoot matches, and in, 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 uh, I saw a few that were hilarious because they were so stinky. But uh, I watched it for a while. I had a chance one time in Australia to watch the promoter's face when he was watching that match. He didn't want me to go out and stretch somebody. I wasn't going to do it, so he sent somebody else. And there was a 20-minute unbelievable cluster clock in the ring. It was just hilarious for me because I had already decided to leave there anyway. I mean, I, I felt sorry for the boys, but um, they didn't have to stay either. Um, anyway, the term jobber is disrespectful. Um, everybody was necessary. If you had one match in the wrestling business, you're one of the boys. As much as a guy who's been in for 50 years and was world champion 10 times, you're both boys. You're both in the same club. Um, one might have a certain degree, more stature, experience, whatever, but you're both still in the club. It's not like, oh, well, I wasn't much. I just did jobs or whatever. Well, somebody was benefiting by what you did. Try to get any of those guys to go out there by themselves and have a match. Couldn't do it. You need somebody in there. If you were at somebody and they went out there and beat you, you were doing them a big service, and they owe you. And then now they want to denigrate you later and say, oh, you're just a jobber. This epitome of ignorant disrespect. And, uh, you know, I don't, I think you guys are, you know, don't, the voice that makes you feel that way, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with them. I mean, why would you want to go around somebody who's looking down on you? Um, why, why would you? I wouldn't do that. I'd rather be alone. Uh, I don't look that on myself. Um, well, at times I did in my life, but I don't now. 
so anyway, that was what my fourth rant, uh, John. Uh, how many more rants do we have coming up? <laughs> well, I'm just curious, because you mentioned booking, and you said you booked a few different territories, Florida being one of them. Where else were you a booker outside of Florida? I booked in uh, uh, Roy Shires territory in California, San Francisco-based, uh, and uh, his fellow promoters uh, uh, tried to get me, as uh, a promoter from Sacramento and San Jose, approached me uh, to uh, take the territory, do a hostile takeover from Roy, and I tried to do it, and, and uh, one of the guys I had counted on to be part of it uh, tipped Roy off, and so I got fired. But I booked out there for about a year. We took the cow palace from $16,000 to about 100000 in four shows. And it wasn't any great brilliance. It was just doing something different. Charles had been doing the same thing for a final years. St. Venice was over and over again because he wouldn't let anybody else run it. He, he was the booker. And he kept doing the same thing. Uh, he only, he only, there's only so many finishes. Uh, well, you can take... You can change the same old thing. There's only apparently in life, like Shakespeare said, there's only 28 basic plots that you can use. And, but you can vary how you use those plots. You know, you change the timing, whatever the circumstances going into whatever that plot is, and disguise it as something else. Uh, just by just by changing the finishes around and surprising fans, we build it up again real quick. And that's why all the other promoters were, were eager, because they'd been starving for years. Their towns were all in the dump. Shires had iron fist control. Plus, he treated everybody like they were garbage or something. He wiped up the sole of the shoe, and uh, they didn't, nobody likes being treated like that. And I worked in, I worked in uh, Ron Fuller, Tennessee, trying to think of the name of the promotion. Uh, worked over there for about a year. <laughs> And we try to take that one too. And I, I'm not trying to sound like I was uh, a thief, but uh, I had some differences with the owner, uh, Ron Fuller, and that's against Ron. Uh, he was a businessman, but um, we had some differences. And uh, Ronnie Garvin was a big, big, was a really big star there. And Ronnie and I, and Larry Simon, Boris Michael were close. And I had Bobby, and I thought I'd take Slater, but. So he went for the other team, uh, and screws us up. But uh, we were talking today, uh, and I said, well, why don't we take it? Why don't we just take this place? I thought about it. I thought, well, why not? Let's see if we can get TV. But um, so my booking, my bookings, I always figured out a way to get myself fired. But uh, hmm. if, you try to, if you try to replace your boss, That'll, that'll, that's enough to get it done. Um, and then again, I, I booked in Florida uh, in the mid uh, in the mid '80s, like '86, '87, uh, for about a year. And uh, that was interesting because they were uh, about one bad week from going under. And I kept them. I kept them going. I uh, I had great talent. I had uh, Barry Wyndham and his, uh, his brother Kendall. And uh, Kendo Nakasaki, uh, Ray Candy is Kareem Muhammad, I think was, um, and 
at Jesse Barr for a while. Um, uh, McMahon stole him, which I didn't steal him. He just hired him away. <laughs> Jesse was making about 800 a week with us, which was good down there. And uh, he called me. He says, Bob, I'm sorry to tell you, but McMahon called me, offered me five grand a week. I said, well, congratulations. I said, you know, uh, uh, he said, well, the problem is, he said, I have to quit today. I said, I, I don't, no problem. I said, I understand. I said, <laughs> I said <laughs> put in a good word for me. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but, we, yeah, and Luger, Rex Luger had just started, and we uh, we were hand-led, hand-fed him. Uh, he had some good guys, some good heels to work with. He could lead him around. And uh, so, you know, we, we did okay for a year. And then, uh, circumstance. Oh, I had... Uh, the Kangaroos and uh, Steve Kern and Stan Lane. I can't remember what they were. The Fabulous something? Fabulous one. Uh, the what? The Fabulous one. Yeah, yeah. They uh, yeah, they were there. So we had real good uh, tag teams, and uh, and Kareem and Kendall were a tag team, a uh, heel tag team, too. So we had two good tag team heels, the Kangaroos and, and Kareem and Kendall, and we had Stan Lane and... Uh, uh, Steve Kern, and we had uh, uh, Barry and Kendall uh, and Luger, and uh, we had uh, anyway. We had enough. We had we had enough talent to uh, you know to do well. We used to run in one town a night, and uh, uh, it was okay. But towards the end, it got to be very, very, uh, very, very. The pressure was was overwhelming. And I was losing my losing my fire, I guess is a good way to put it. I retired shortly after that, and I'm glad I did. I mean, I, I've had 30 years uh, to have a – it's not a new life. It's a different life. And the wrestling years, those are all great years. I mean, I, you, know, you forget all the, the, the misery of being on the road, your kid's birthday, and, you know, I mean, uh, all I have to tell your kid happy birthday over the phone and, you know, you forget all that stuff. You remember the good things. And that's another thing, going back to these fan fest things. Um, uh, I had the bad news of hearing that uh, a fan fest put on Barry, by Barry Rhodes uh, and Dave Penzer down in Tampa. I, I was uh, one with Steve Kern this past July. They're having one again this year. And then unless things improve, uh, uh, maybe this is going to be the last one. I don't know if you you can always edit it out if it's inappropriate, but I'd like to say um, to anybody listening out there, if you're uh, you know if you're able to go to a really great event, you get to be firsthand, face to face, talking to uh, wrestlers. You know, look and see if it's somebody you might like next year or year after, and uh, uh, think about going. I don't think it's that expensive. Um, so anyway. I just want to make a platform, but uh, yeah, to be able to go out and go to these things and have people remember you and recognize you and come up, you know, they we have a mind's eye. Most of us, some people don't, but they got blinders on. But in our mind's eye, we see things a different way. I'm always careful to have my mind's eye the one that's operating when I stand in front of a mirror. But so are fans when uh, when they come and look at you. I look at some of the pictures on Facebook of these things like at Wichita Falls and Tampa and uh, 
the Hall of Fame at Waterloo, and these pictures got taken in different places. And some of them were on in clothes that I didn't want to be. I was on my way to the ice machine in a, in like I say, a tight shirt. And someone in my, with my particular proportions should not wear tight clothes. So, <laughs> you know, I see these pictures, I go, oh, my God. Oh, jeez. I, I wrote a post about it today. I, I said I was going to sue Facebook to take those pictures out of there until I, until I could get some plastic surgery and liposuction. But, uh <laughs> But but in the fans, the point is, I'm just kidding, really. The the, the 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 in the fans' eye, that that that's what they do see. They're looking back at memories when they look at you now, and they're not. I don't see people going, "Oh my God, what the hell happened to him?" And I have very few people who come up and say, "Are you sure you're Bob Roop?" <laughs> they usually know, and they come up and um, and they remember me the way I was, and uh, I don't mean exactly identical. But they have that, that Bob Roop in their mind's eye that they can compare me, my present-day incarnation, to. And, uh, you know, and they happily make the adjustment. They've got older, too. They know some of them have lost their hair and teeth, and, you know, they're a lot younger than I am, and they, uh, you know, they know what life does to us. And that's, that's what's, what's nice about it, though, is that we're meeting on an equal plane, and... Uh, you know, it can't, you can't have fun with people if you're looking down at them or up at them. And I certainly don't want any fans that come around me to ever think I'm doing either one. And they shouldn't either. If I don't want to, uh, I don't want to uh, meet with people or be, you know be around folks, I won't be there. And that's the way all the, the, the one good thing is that most of the guys, the, the marks I was telling you about up among the boys, don't come to these things. Uh, I think I, I'm doing some psycho babble here, but I think it might be because they, they're going to—they're afraid of what they might discover. That they're much more in their own in their own mind. Uh, they're much more than they are in their own mind than they are in other people's minds. Other people might remember them with a certain amount of, you know, import of distinction or whatever, but that's not true today. I mean, you know. An ex-president is still, you know, I'd love to meet Obama, but, uh, you know, I mean, be honored. But meeting him now as opposed to when meeting a president, not that either one is not absolutely desirable, but they're different. He's not the president anymore. And 20 years from now, it'd be even more different because he's far removed from it. So someone like myself who's like, when I was inducted in the Hall of Fame in 2007, uh, in Water, it, it wasn't Waterloo at the time. They moved it the next year. Uh, but Bret Hart was on the list. Uh, Larry Henning, Bret Hart, uh, Ted DiBiase was getting some award, uh, uh, Man of the Year or, or something. Uh, I think because Ted was doing evangelistic-type work then, uh, he was uh, given a service award. Okay? A distinguished award. And Ted had been not too long out of the spotlight, just a few years. But Ted and I were uh, at the autograph or the, the memorabilia autograph slash autograph session uh, where fans could come to uh, to get autographs and buy stuff. Ted and I both, I had books and some pictures. That's about it. I had a book. I wrote some pictures. And he had some pictures. So we had very few people. Bret Hart had a line that had, 
I don't know, three, four hundred people in all the time. And uh, one or two of them might wander over just to see who we were. We were working for bread or whatever. But uh, I'd been gone so long, I didn't expect it. I wasn't put off by it. I mean, uh, I've been retired so long, I didn't even look like I used to look. So, um, you know, no, at least nobody looked at the pictures I had that said, oh, that's your kid? Where is he? Uh, but um, even Ted didn't get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of attention. Because Brett had been, you know, Brett had been recently had been a WWE champion, you know, and, and done very well. And, and uh, but you know now, um, I think he's been back to work. But now, um, if he if he goes back there, say for a new with a new class, uh, the people who will be in a, and that was that was eleven years ago. Uh, to go now, uh, there's going to be somebody else that's going to have that long line. Now he might have. Uh, quite a few people want to get his autograph or whatever. I don't know, but because uh, he had he had worldwide exposure, most of us from my generation had local exposure. And uh, but the guy who's being honored today, I mean the current guy is probably going to get uh, you know the, the the head guy in the class being inducted is probably going to get most of the fans, and that's just the way it goes. So I'm, going, I'm circling back around to the point I was trying to make about um, guys believing their own publicity and then acting like that. It's you know, everything at the height of their fame and, and fortune that they're still the same. Well, the, hopefully they save their money and the fortune's still there, but the fame's gone. I mean, uh, the widespread uh, instant recognizability uh while it might still be there with, say, 60, 70% of the population, if you haven't been on TV, there's a whole generation or two of new fans who come along and don't know who you are. So you're going to have people walk right by you and say, oh, Hulk Hogan, I've never heard of you. Um, and guys need to recognize that because if you're living by what other people think of you, you make a big mistake. It's important what you think of yourself. Um, if you want to, you know, because at the end of the day, everybody else is gone. And extrapolate, I'm going to get real morbid here, but extrapolate that down to the end of your last day. Who are you there with in finality? With yourself. You want to be able to look back at, you know, your life and have a sense of, well, I was a real person. I was in touch with myself through most of my life. I, and in enough of a touch with myself with the other parts where I was trying to avoid myself, that I can still look at that time and say, well, I'm glad I got past that lack of character phase or that uh, ignorant phase or whatever it might phase, whatever it might be. Um, and so uh, uh, I, 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 I feel for the guys that, uh, uh, and I found it was a syndrome of a lot of people who had been fans and then got into business. That looking at wrestling from a fan standpoint creates a kind of a, I don't want to say warped, but let's say different mindset when you yourself become one of those people. I think they still look at themselves and assume that they're being seen by everybody else as a fan, from a fan's point of view. And I, I mean, and that's the way they look at themselves. I never did look at myself like that. You know, I because uh, I was fortunate I kept my own name. I didn't have to worry about bipolar 
you know, creating bipolar personalities. But uh, I, I I never lost track of who I Well, I was lucky. I'd been in service. I had four years of college, and I was 26. So I sacrificed. Ronnie Garvin got in the business like eight or nine years earlier than I did, and he had the advantage of that experience. But I had the advantage of being at least uh, maturely immature by the time I got into it, so that I was fairly grown. I think for someone like, say, Tommy Rich, who gets that and was a little, little very grounding, uh, and has given all, you know, all of a sudden becomes a big, big star in a short period of, you know, relatively a year or two, uh, it's overwhelming. You know, it's just too much to, you know, too much to, to take uh, how to deal with it. You know, the pressure it puts on you, especially when you're looking at yourself as being nowhere near the, what everybody else thinks you are from the TV persona you project. Yeah, it can be very disconcerting. Uh, let's see, did, does your program have a psycho babble uh, category? What's <laughs> the last part into? <laughs> Stories, and you obviously, you, know, you were in the business which is a long time, so respected, but behind the scenes booking and in front of the scenes wrestling, I mean, you understand psychology and everything that goes into the business, but I'm just curious because, I mean, you wrestled pretty much everywhere. Like we mostly, we talked a lot about Florida. We mentioned a little bit about Georgia. We talked a little bit about Knoxville, but as far as some other territories, I know you wrestled in Japan for all Japan and new Japan you wrestled in the Mid-South for Bill Watts. You wrestled in ICW for the Popos, Mid-Atlantic for the Crockett's small periods of time in the WWF for Vince Sr. Where was the, kind of your favorite territory? Where was your favorite place to wrestle? Well, part of it has to do with uh, who I was as a person in terms of enjoyment. I'll refer you back to talking about going to the Bahamas and Puerto Rico for the first time. Um, everything was new and shiny, and, and you know, I was still learning to work. There was so much of, of the negative side of the business, the, the uh, backbiting and infighting among uh, the boys sometimes trying to, you know, better their position by knocking off one of their colleagues or, you know, being a stooge of some kind. Um, there's a lot of treachery. There's... There, but let's put it this way, there's a potential for a lot of treachery in the wrestling business. Guys are wanting to be, you know, we're making the same trip. Everybody's driving, say, to Jacksonville and back from Tampa's 400 miles. Uh, why go down there for the opening match and make you know, 40 bucks back in the day and not be in the main event and make 200? So they're fighting for that top spot. Uh, my enjoyment, I think, was less when I had, when I was new, was... Uh, Florida was very nice. Uh, uh, let's see. I enjoyed every every time. Our first trip to Japan, seven weeks. Uh, you talk about some guys: Ernie Ladd, Rocky Johnson, uh, Nick Blackwinkle, Nick and I, Larry Hainemi, Lars Anderson, uh, Frankie Lane. Uh, I think of other top guys. Um, there were three or four guys, and then. On the other side was uh, Baba and Anoki were both working for the same company. There was like five, six guys from that 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 won a seven-week tour. That we had a tag team tournament that were are in either Japanese or American or World Hall of Fames. 
So, you know, heavy-duty crowd. That was very enjoyable. I was a, I was by far the greenest, the newest guy on in the crew, um, and I loved it. I mean, I, I just enjoyed the heck out of it. Nick Bockwinkle and I used to spend a lot of time, sometimes we'd go off on the trains and find a private car and just, you know, talk, talk uh, philosophy, different stuff. Um, and uh, we had, he was also one of the few guys who'd leave the hotel. We'd wander around towns together and, Japan was very safe, even at night. In Tokyo, you didn't want to go down into Yakuza Alley in the middle of the night, but uh, uh, just about it, it was safe there. And last, I mean, in certain circumstances, you might not want to be seen with a Japanese girl on your arm in a certain, in a certain place at a certain time of night on a weekend. Uh, but most of the time, it was safe no matter what was going on. So... Uh, and then back to your original question about enjoyment. Uh, after San Francisco, my first booking, full booking job where I was in charge was a very heavy experience. Uh, taking the cow palace from uh, negative oil returns, uh, that place when it make, got 16,000, it's like an empty building, to uh, you know, semi-respectability in terms of drawing, drawing again, was very, uh, that was enjoyable. Um, Whiten with Roy Shires was uh, it was not fun, but in retrospect, it's very, very, uh, very, very fond memories. I'm going to be putting some of them on Facebook in the next year. Uh, Shires and I had an ongoing battle for control, and uh, he hired me to be the booker, but he just wanted me to uh, take his finishes and do the same stuff he'd been doing, but just had to come from a different person. And I disagreed. I wouldn't do it. So... I, I, I just stalled him until uh, I got things going again. And then um, he had to weigh the, the benefits of having his income, his weekly income, triple uh, in terms of gross proceeds as opposed to not having total control and decide whether to keep me or not. And then things just kept getting better. But he kept fighting. He kept trying to take it. And uh, he wanted to be back in charge. He used to call a wrestler's. Uh, every kind of horrible name. I mean, cuss words. You call them SOBs and stupid. You uh, call them stupid. I heard him. I saw him saying that to grown men. And, you know, he never said anything like that to me, but his guys would take it. Because, you know, he was paying them, and so they'd take it. He'd tell them to go out and do a couple of high spots in their match. And they didn't do it exactly right. He'd call them stupid. Uh, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't a great friend. Anyway, that part, that part, the first six months of that was, what I look back on it, was I was in my physical prime, and uh, I, was, I was, my first time, I was, ideas I'd been taught, I working in the Florida office with uh, Eddie Graham, for one, but Louis Tillette, uh, Harley Race, uh, four or five different bookers, um, and getting a, a small piece of all their ideas. And then I had Kevin Sullivan out there, and Kevin had ideas of his own. He was already, at a very young age, was very he was thinking about the business all the time, and he he had some he came up with a great angle for us using his dad. So that was a very heady time, and uh, you know, getting knocked off and and then getting fired, and uh, I still kept some of my uh, you know my elan, my spirit, I guess. Uh, and Knoxville was fun. Short trips, a lot of fun with Ronnie and uh, Larry Simon with Boris Malenko. We had a lot of fun. And Bobby 
Thornton Jr. was my partner. We had a lot of fun and making money, short trips. It was that was a lot of fun. Same thing though. We tried to go opposition and got knocked off. And uh, by that time, I kind of lost. Uh, oh, and while we were opposition there, none of the rest of the guys in the in the business would speak to any of us. They were afraid to be seen speaking to us because they were afraid they'd get blackballed. And that having that happen, where you go from being one of the boys to being not one of the boys because you're you're trying to we were trying to start a union. Uh, I already had seen the football players and the baseball players going from being basically servants to the owners to uh, having their own uh, union and their wages uh, uh, growing exponentially. And uh, so I thought we'd try to do the same thing with uh, with wrestling. And so it would have been a benefit for all the boys. But we had one trader and one guy who, you know, was scared. And instead of coming to us and telling us what he was going to do, he just went behind our back. And so I got fired there. Um, the uh, stooge got my got my job. And uh, then I went out with Watts. By that time, I was losing my bill. was very was very interesting to work for. Uh, there was a guy out there, Sylvester Rudder, the, the junkyard dog, Ritter. Uh, great guy, uh, super guy, good man. Um, I, I respected him first as a man, as a person. He, he had some, he had some devils. Uh, he had some personal, personal devils, but he, he was a good man and uh, he was a great talent. He and his ring work was oh C plus, not at Hogan's, but, it's, but still he had charisma and the look and everything, and he was a good guy. I'd done him a small favor one time, just a very little bitty one. I put him on TV just to make him a 15 or $20 payoff because he was passing through on his way out to Louisiana, out to be with Watts to get this big break, his junkyard dog. And when I came in there, he treated me like I had, uh, you know, married into his family. He was just uh, a sweet and a stand-up guy. And I saw him take Luger on up in Toronto one time. Or actually, it wasn't Toronto. It was a little town outside of there. Luger did something. Upstate, and when the dog was being introduced, Luger walked in front of him as he was trying to step out, and you know Luger had already been introduced, and dog got out about it. And, you know he seen he he dog was such a star. He went into Houston Cole against Nick Bockwinkle. Cole Cole match. They hadn't they didn't have an angle going. Uh, just two names, and Paul Bosch was a great promoter, and he also paid very well. I don't know what the house was, but Dog showed me his check. He made eight grand for one show uh, back in the day before contracts, and uh, so uh, yeah, he was a he was a top guy, and he was a good man. I really liked him. Um, I like working in Atlanta for Ole Anderson, mainly because Ole was uh, uh, he got a lot of heat with people, but I respected him. He respected me, and he he, he said things refutable. Reason people didn't like him, he didn't say, "Oh, I yeah, yeah, I like you. I'm gonna take care of you." He would say, "Yeah, down that's OB. Why'd you do that?" And and then he'd go and keep booking you or paying you or whatever. But he just he was honest. And guys didn't want to hear that. They wanted to be smoothed and stolen from, as opposed to being told the truth and paid right. And uh, so that time in my life, at least I could respect myself for working there. And then that was. Uh, I went down to Florida and I worked down there. 
Netbooking job was fine. Um, I enjoyed working with the boys, uh, Barry and Kendall. I got to know them a little better. But there was there was sniping all the time. There were some people on the side, and I'm not going to name names again because uh, one of them's still alive, but three of them are, are so I'm not going to say anything. But there was there was a constant battle. Uh, Hiro Matsuda was the boss, and Hiro's a great guy. You know, I never had, I still don't have any beef with him, but he kept hearing, these guys kept coming to him with stories about why I shouldn't be, you know, they had to take the book away from me. And I didn't help my own cause by uh, drinking too much. And I think Hero, caught, you know, saw me doing it once or twice. Uh, but it was just a, you know, it was self-medication for uh, the stress of the job. Plus, I found something else about lately. I've been writing a book. Um, I'm about to publish it. I've been working on it for three years. It's about wrestling in, in Iraq. Um, so I found out in 2015 that Saddam Hussein was a booker when I was the uh, promoter when I went over there to wrestle. And what I thought was just carelessness where I almost got killed, I, just, I, put, I did some research and put things together and found out that that was a murder attempt. And so I, I, I do know that it scared me so badly at the time it happened. Uh, I'm talking about uh, uh, screaming. Uh, I had a guy almost stab me in the face, uh, and it's only because he couldn't reach through the back of this small window in the back of this military truck that he, his knife didn't go into my right eye. Uh, it scared me so bad, I screamed out loud. Uh, but I managed to get out of there, and I had to sneak my way out of the country. And I thought that it was my own fault. I thought that I was just careless. And, you know, that they, you know, I couldn't, I'd been to Japan a couple of times already, and I, or at least once, I'd been to Australia once. And I couldn't believe that anybody would try to kill me. Why would they do that? But, to, but in Iraq, the, the wrestling was run by the government. And Saddam was using it as a propaganda tool. Those matches were taped, 200,000 people came to the matches, and they were taped by, they, the TV taping went all over the Middle East, and, uh, and all throughout Iraq and all over the Middle East. There'd be 100,000 people outside the stadium who couldn't get in. And uh, it was a big propaganda thing. His party was very weak, and uh, he was trying to make it look stronger. He spent the first year before the wrestling started by doing public executions bringing tumped-up charges against people of Jewish uh, uh, faith, hanging them upside down in a town square, and then letting everybody in Baghdad come and see them um, dead or dying. Um, he did that for about the first year, and then he had to, happened upon the wrestling as a way to uh, promote his political party. He actually went on TV and likened the advancement and success of his political party was the advancement and success of his wrestling program. They had an Iraqi guy, Adnan Casey, who went on to be General Adnan. Uh, he worked in this country as Philly White Wolf for 14 years, went back to Iraq just to visit, and got caught up by Saddam, and who came was a very canny, shrewd, uh, cunning, uh, you know, uh, dictator. He wasn't a politician. He was a dictator uh, who saw a way to promote uh, the bath party is the party it sounds like bath like bathtub 
It's B A uh, umlaut A B A A T H. Uh, political party. That was, I don't know what that word stands for, but anyway, that was the name of his party. And in order to promote it, and he worked. He became uh, the Saddam who started the, the Gulf War. You know, invading Iraq, Kuwait. In '72, he was just first deputy to the president. He was like, he was in a, in a sense in the position of an American vice president, but he he ran the country. The vice president was kind of a figurehead. Saddam was the one murdering people and coming up with ways to scare the population into, um, you know, not. Uh, but he, he used the, he used the United States as the reason for having to do all the repression they did over there. But anyway, uh, uh, I uh, I found out that as a result of that I had PTSD. So I think that uh, you know I I found out about two years ago. And uh, I, I, I look back at, 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 I happened across somebody else who had suffered it and saw some of the symptoms. I thought, wait a minute, I got that too. So I asked a person I know who's a professional to evaluate me. They said, yeah. Most, and it's not a big deal. It depends on, I mean, it can be from anything. It can be from like almost getting in a car wreck. It doesn't have to be anything ultimately. I like like uh, extremely traumatic. It doesn't have to be death or, you know, watching your loved one die, you know, horribly burn up in a fire. It doesn't have to be that. In my case, it was. I had a bunch of people trying to kill me, and uh, I was alone. Um, the military guys that were supposed to be guarding me it took off. And so uh, uh, I... Uh, I'm, I'm gone. I know where I left. I mean, it's not like the old pot days where you go up on a store. Some good, uh, sorry folks, this is long, long, actually it's legal now, I don't know, but I don't do any drugs. I haven't for a long time, but um, uh, back in the pot days, you'd start on a story and then you'd go wander off on a sidetrack for maybe a half hour and then you might find your way back to the original story. I'm keeping the original story. Uh, which was, uh, no, I've forgotten. No, it was uh, about the drinking in, in Florida. Uh, the stress, I think, was causing me to self-medicate cause, because as soon as I, my uh, student and I came to agreement about me leaving, uh, which was a polite way of saying I got fired, uh, I quit drinking. Oh, I quit. I cut way down. Uh, I got to the point where I was drinking during the day. Uh, you know, while I was working, while I was booking, I was up in the office every day, and then going to the shows at night. So, yeah, it was a hard, it was a hard job keeping things together. I didn't have an assistant, uh, so uh, anyway, uh, the original question is, what did I enjoy? I think it was not the place themselves. If I had started with Bill, or if I had started with uh, working with Oli in Atlanta, or started. In, San Francisco when I still had, you know, I still had blinders on in terms of the, the, the you know, the more negative dynamics of the business. Those might have been, those might have been my favorite places. But I think that because Florida it was all new and uh, I had to, I had the privilege of having Jack Briscoe as my first uh, close professional friend, you know, a guy who was much similar background. We spoke the same language. 
he was he was like a professor to my kindergarten kid in pro, but we were we were co co uh, students or or professors in the amateur ranks. So we had a we had a common you know we had a common denominator that linked us, and uh, that that was enjoyable. It's hard to make friends in the wrestling business. Um, you uh, you might like a guy that you make money with, but uh, it's just hard, you know. You you can't visit, you, and most of the time, you know, a lot of times you're not in the same dressing room. So the only time you spend with them is the TV and in the ring. So you don't, you can't really socialize. So um, friendships are hard to develop. But uh, I'm fortunate. I've got a few. Ronnie Garvin and I are still very close. And Jim Rashke, Barragon Rashke, and I, we knew each other before either one of us got in the wrestling business. We were in the army together and uh, on the Army wrestling team, all-service wrestling team in 1964. And we, we, knew, we met then, and, and uh, we're, we're friends, we're good friends to this day. That's truly an old but gold relationship, but Jim's a good guy. Now, he's, one of, he's a guy much more famous than I am. I think he couldn't make uh, Waterloo this year because he had accepted. They, Waterloo had moved their meeting from a normal to a third week in August to the 4th, and uh, Jim had booked something for the 4th, and I thought, well, I wonder what he booked. <laughs> what he booked was he, he, was being, he was being inducted into his 14th Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, one of, he's a great guy. He's a nice, one of the nicest men you, you ever run into. You wouldn't know it. He, he does his, uh, his barren thing. Um, in public most of the time because, you know, I don't blame him. Um, if you don't, uh, if you become just country-raised and uh, he's not a hick or anything, but you know, he's college-educated, but you go back to being just plain Jim Rashke, you know, the Baron's kind of out there. So, but he's a lot of fun. He's a good guy, very smart, very witty, amusing, droll, um, fun to be with. Uh, so... It's a pleasure to have him uh, as a friend, uh, you know, after the after the business. And and uh, my, the, my Dr. Red Roberts, who Mike Brown in Florida, he and I are dear friends. Um, we worked together on Global Wrestling Alliance back in the late '80s, and then I moved up here to Michigan to help care for a family member, uh, their kids, as in as in, in in truth and. Um, I hadn't seen, I've seen Mike, Mike, or I call him Red. I knew him as Red Roberts, his stage name. But uh, I'd seen him twice in 25 years. And last July, after the, the fan fest in Tampa, went down, my son Kyle, Kyle and I went down and uh, stayed with him for a week. Um, I was telling you about going to the wrestling show. We stayed, I stayed, we stayed at his house for a week. And after being there an hour, it would be, it was like the 25 years just disappeared. Our friendship was just back, even with 25 years of separation, uh, back where it was when we'd last. So that's a true friendship. Uh, it, it doesn't always have, it sometimes through circumstance or, you know, bad luck or whatever, you don't have a chance to build new memories continuously through the length of a friendship. Uh, Jim Rashi and I didn't even see each other for many years, even when we were both in the business. He worked up north in the cold states, and I stayed down south in the warm areas. So where our paths didn't cross, I don't remember working on a show with him. 
but we were still friends, even if we didn't see each other. So uh, it's lucky, you know, to get out of the business and have some guys. Now, you, uh, going to the uh, reunions, there's a, guy, a lot of guys I see that I'm really glad to see. Don't get me wrong. And you want to say friends, but I, you know, I think about it, anybody listening, if you have someone who you've been friends with for 50 years that, say, you've gone to war with, say you're box old buddies where, you know, you saved each other's life and you're, you're, you're you know, and your families have grown up together and you're dear, dear friends, have been for 50 years. Then you meet somebody who, uh, okay, you've known them two or three months and uh, you like them, so you want to call them a friend. Uh, and I, I, it's, this is a difficult one to, to parse, to think out, because you don't want to say acquaintance, because that's kind of off-putting. They are a friend, yes, but are they the same friend as that friend of 50 years? They aren't. Because So I've got categories. One is old but gold, and that's Jim Rasky. Uh One is new but true, and that could be somebody I met yesterday who I really feel is a friend. That way I can call him a friend. And I'll tell them, I'll tell them that. I said, we're new but true. You know, I've got all the gold. I have people I've known 50 years. I hope we have that same, I'm going to have to be 100, 125, but I said, I hope we can have that same longevity too. So, um, and then there's, uh, as you know, that. And any wrestling, any people who are wrestling fans who are wanting to show respect for old retired wrestlers like me, or just for the profession, I consider those people friendly and respectful in their attitude. And I'm much, much, I'd be much, it'd be a pleasure to get to know them, to get to meet them, even if it's just one time casually, because we were in this together. And uh, especially if they're people who, you know, were fans that helped support me or later generations of the boys, they contributed to my welfare. And I'm grateful for it. Uh, it will take take folks out there for granted as short-sighted um, because um, that attitude is not enduring in any way. And like I said, I've said several times earlier, my cycle babble that um, the, the, the glory the glory days don't go forever. They don't go on forever. There'll be a day when uh, you're you're relying mainly on memories, your own. And that's where it's important is how do you look at things as you're going through them. And then the memories of the people you've impacted or you've made connections with or lacked making connections with in your life. What are their memories like? I'm very gratified when I have people get on Facebook and say, well, I met you back so-and-so or I remember you from here. And, and most of the time, it's not we're talking about over the heel. But, they're, you know, obviously their fans are, you know, they know about the business, the business is sports entertainment. Uh, uh, so, you know, I consider that very flattering, you know, and I don't want them to think, well, I'm a big star and you're just a jabroni fan. No, we're the same. We're both needed for our relationship to happen. I don't want to be, you know, one of the things about looking down on people, if you, if you have that philosophy in mind and it's okay to do that, guess what you've done to yourself? You've just kicked yourself right in the most sensitive area of your body and you're repeatedly doing it every day emotionally and psych psychologically. Why? Because if you look down, then you're forced to look up. 
and you're looking up at the people you feel because you feel those, are, some people are beneath you, now you're forced to look up at the people you think are going to, because you figure they got the same mindset you do, you got to look up at these people that you figure because they're richer, younger, more famous, they're in the limelight now, and you're an old, forgotten, uh, toothless uh, old bag. Uh, that you're, you know, now you're not in the limelight at all, but they're looking down on you. You assume that, and we are people can be their own worst enemies. It's much better not just not to look. Down. I don't look down on people, but I also don't accept people looking down on me. If you want to, that's fine. I'm not going to be there for you to look down on very long. Uh, you're certainly not going to be in my house to look down on, uh, or in my company if I can avoid it. Um, and that's the way it should be with the fans. I even hate the word fans because, like I say, it it, it, it denotes kind of a, uh, a remoteness. Uh, we're in the ring, they're in the seats, and nah, we actually were all there in the ring together, uh, literally a few times. Thank God, not too often. Uh, fans jumping in the ring is really scary. Uh, I don't care whether you've got nine Olympic gold medals. Uh, they might have a gun or a knife or... 55 people coming right behind them. So uh, it's scary business. Okay, John, rant number six. <laughs> now, as we uh, start to wind it down here and head towards the finish, just was curious <laughs> about, you know, your plugs and stuff like that. Do you want people to kind of reach out to you on Facebook? Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about maybe when the book is coming out, what the book is going to be called, where the fans might be able to get the book, you know, things like that. Yeah, I would. Uh, I, I, yes, and Facebook is one of the reasons, I, you know, there's no sense not being actually straight with you and any of your listeners and all of your listeners, is that, uh, yes, I got back on Facebook uh, for a purpose. Uh, my book should be coming out within uh, hopefully three months. I'm going to be an ebook. If I get the advent, uh, uh, the advice that it might be worthwhile, that will probably come from the Kindle or the ebook people, Amazon, or they think it, um, they might have some demographics or, or uh, statistics that shows them that it might be uh, welcome as an ebook or as a paperback, uh, but definitely ebook. Um, yeah, um, I, I definitely want to reach out. One of the reasons I stay on Facebook was in the past was I enjoyed it so much. I was spending hours every day. Uh, people would send me little notes about this and that, and I would respond to them with more than just, oh, thanks. I would, you know, write something. And uh, it got to be where I was every, you know, four or five hours every day. So then uh, things came up. Uh, four years ago, my wife got sick. She had a stroke, and then a short time later, had another one, and we lost her last uh, July. But... Um, and I'm not trying to be dis- bring any despair into our talk. Uh, we had three years to say goodbye to her, and I had 41 good years with her that I think were okay for her, too. Um, we had two kids together and a good life. She was one of the boys. She was smart to the business all the time, and that's one of the reasons I liked her was because she wasn't, um, she, was, she didn't even like her <laughs> at all. I had, to, I had to use all of my charm, and I don't mean lying. I mean... I had to I had to show her that I wasn't a crumb bomb before she even just be seen with me. So uh, you know, I started out respecting her and I never lost it. But uh, uh, 
Yeah, the uh, she got sick, and so um, I, and then in the last year I've been working hard on the book. Uh, so I got when I got to where I feel like I'm just a couple months away. Uh, I mean, currently I'm looking for, I'm talking to a guy that works out of Ireland uh, for a cover, and you know, cover to the ebook and the, anything that goes into print. Now they got this great gimmick you probably know about, but called uh, print to order. You don't buy eight, ten thousand or a thousand books um, and pay for them. You you have it out there, and the people uh, it's an ebook, and people who want a hard copy they can order it. So they only print one at a time, um, or you know whatever the order is. But you know we'll see. Uh, the demographics. Um, I wrote a book 20 years ago, and uh, I sent it to several. Uh, publishing companies, and I got a response that they, uh, two of the readers, these are the people that read books before they even submit them. You know, editor can't read. Uh, there might be uh, 500 submissions a week uh, for each editor, and our manuscript selector, maybe editor is the wrong word, editor is the wrong word, for each person who selects books that they should look at and, and think about publishing. Um, Every every one of those has several readers, and depending on the amount, of course, of, of uh, submissions they get. And uh, one guy I talked to said, "Well, when I came to work this morning, there were uh, 45 uh, uh, submissions, manuscript submissions in my mailbox uh, over the weekend." So he said he read it. He started reading it, and he read it all the way through. He said he liked it. But when he went to the uh, selector, the guy that had his boss, uh, he was told that uh, wrestling fans don't buy books. That's what their demographics said. Now, this was before the Internet. Um, the book sat on a shelf for a long time. It's still there. But I've had two people whose uh, opinions I trust uh, who told me, Bob, you ought to write a book about your own adventures. That story you have about Iraq is uh, one of my friends, a classmate from uh, graduated in 1958 from the same high school, even in my sister's class, graduated two years before I did. He taught, he had a, his girlfriend was a producer for movies. And he, he pitched it to her as a movie, uh, but she was, uh, he told me the other day, we're back in touch. Um, he told me that she was ailing and couldn't really pursue it with all her powers because she robbed of a lot of but um, so their advice was to write a book about my own life, a real, a real life story. And because I have one that's pretty exceptional, there weren't many, many wrestlers who tried to be murdered by Saddam Hussein. Uh, and I mean, I, I don't have to say it. Uh, Adnan Casey wrote a book. That's all I found out. It's sitting here right in front of me. It's called The Sheik of Baghdad. I'm talking your book, Adnan. Tales of Celebrity and Terror from Pro Wrestling's General Adnan by Adnan Al Casey. Well, that, in his book, that's the first I heard of, of Saddam Hussein. Uh, never, and I, they didn't tell me about him when I went over there. And guess what I did when I went over there? I beat him. Well, beating him was like beating Saddam. <laughs> he wanted to kill me immediately. He wanted to kill me in the ring. But um, he couldn't because I had beat his guy. So instead of instead of uh, killing me, he uh, ordered me 
held hostage. I didn't. I wasn't put in jail, but I was told I couldn't leave uh, until they had another rematch, which was eight days later. And uh, in the rematch, I got knocked out by Casey. I don't know if it was accidental. I think he just told me. I, I, I'm of two minds, and I write about both of them in the book. But uh, he was either panic-stricken to the point of insanity or, or he was, uh, he was uh, being uh, malicious. Uh, and after that one was where I almost got killed. Uh, so uh, anyway, the, the idea about writing uh, a story of my own life and then publishing uh, these books. I've got several other works of fiction that I've worked on at odd times over the years. I've been retired 30 years. I've only worked as Mr. Mom for 10 years, and my wife always worked as a nurse, and so kind of what she wanted. Um, we both did. I like being Mr. Mom. She liked working uh, as a nurse, uh, not just working, but as a nurse. And uh, uh, so... Uh, I, uh, but I, it's a, you know, I was home a lot. I, I started writing, and I started writing stories about uh, fiction, though, not not stories about my life, because I didn't think they'd be interesting. But there were no books about uh, not pro wrestling, uh, fiction books, and I understand why. Um, the the demographics. Now maybe, maybe that's why. Maybe the no, but I tell you what, I was going to say maybe the reason the wrestling fans don't buy books because there's not many books out there about wrestlers. But uh, Scott Teal, who is a wonderful wrestling historian, has written bios of, oh, 10 or 12 guys, Ole Anderson, uh, 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 Jim Dillon, uh, oh, Cody Hamilton, an assassin. Uh, there's five or six others. Uh, um, I'm having a I'm having a mind, mind, uh, mind meltdown here. Anyway, he's written a bunch of books, but they're biographies. And um, I don't, uh, and the point is that with all the memorabilia he has, he doesn't clean up, let's put it this way. He sells stuff, but he doesn't like really rake it in. And I, I, I think his work is wonderful. I think him being a historian and, and commemorating people's lives. He would start out with a thing, whatever happened to. Uh, he was writing these like magazine-type uh, books of oh, 25, 30 pages about retired wrestlers who were had no place to go but into the grave. He was trying to get their life story and you know the high points of their careers before they passed away. And what better, what bigger tribute could you have? And that's how I met Scott. He called me to ask about someone else. And... Uh, so you know he's a he's a great guy and uh, but um, I understand uh, and I agree with him why a lot of stuff doesn't sell. Um, wrestling fans that were diehard wrestling fans aren't real interested in reading about Jim Dillon. They want to see Jim Dillon. Now when they see Jim Dillon and all these things, they might buy some, they might buy a, one of Jim Dillon's books. The last time I saw Jim this last summer. He said that one of the things he went to, he sold like, oh, 80, 80 or 90 books, which is great. You know, I mean, that's a lot of books, um, you know, directly. And to the, he autographed them there and sold them, to, you know, hand-to-hand to the customer. And that's great. But, uh, uh, you know, how, how, you know, nowadays, unless even, even if bookstores, like on book tours, 
which, you know, they have for, you know, John Grisham and all that. He goes to a book tour. You're guaranteed whatever venue there is going to be full. People want to get his autograph and just, you know, see this great author. Um, but uh, even if they had him for wrestlers, and I, I don't know how many wrestling fans would come, or if they did come, would come to buy the book. So I think they're just grounded more in not reading about it, but watching and live shows and going to see it. They just have different mentality. That's why my book, it's called Wrestling for Saddam, is based in a political situation. And that's why I thought it had merit or possibilities. Because it's not about wrestling per se. It's about government using wrestling as a political tool to gain political power. And using it murderously, too, in terms of trying to murder me. And like I said, Saddam, is, it's in Wikipedia that uh, he, uh, he was routinely uh, chopping up charges against Jews like they were uh, spies because uh, of their heat with Israel uh, and hanging them. Uh, I think the first group was like 15, hung them upside down from lampposts with, uh, by their heels, I think, I don't know if they're already dead or slowly dying and shot them first before or what, but uh, I might know, but I can't remember. Uh, but uh, And then uh, uh, they went on the radio and the TV and announced there's this great show down at the big square, you know, 15 uh, enemies to the state. They're hanging and uh, just hanging around waiting for you. I guess a half million people came down there to see it. And I don't mean to be flippant. Uh, I'm not. It's a horrible crime. Saddam did not pay anywhere near what he should have paid just by being hung. Uh, he should have been able to be resuscitated and hung about, well, he killed a million people. He should be, uh, have to be hung at least 100,000 times. Um, but, um, and I'm not saying cruel and unusual punishment. Hanging is not considered that. Um, I'm not talking about tortured. I saw it. Uh, they took me into a torture chamber over there, and, and it was the idea of scaring that crap out of me, which they did. Um, uh, although they didn't thank God they didn't shut the door while I was in there. Uh, but uh, none of the guys who were escorting me around came in there with me, so that was a little alarming. But anyway, uh, uh, was the idea of uh, it being politically, that with our country so politically charged right now, um, my hopes are that that political uh, tag will help it cross over and reach a mainstream audience. And here's another thing that's a, it's a, 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 no, I don't know if American publishers even know this. What's to say that wrestling fans in Europe, Africa, or Asia, uh, Russia, uh, China, that they aren't like, want to read books about wrestling, about American wrestlers. Uh, they probably get most of the TV. So who's to say they wouldn't want to buy books? By being able to, uh, to, to put it on a worldwide uh, market, I have good, you know, I have high hopes. And, you know, it, it's not it's not life or death. Uh, a lot of times, that old saying, it's not original, of course, but a lot of times it's a journey, not to, not to destination. Um, I've, 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 uh, I've had a lot of fun. I found out I had PTSD. That's not fun. But it's been, uh, it's been, well, by finding out that Saddam was there and that what happened to me wasn't an accident, was very, was very healing. I've healed to quite a degree because it had been 46 years. 
But thinking about it, oh, man. When I start thinking, I I had memories that I shut off so many years, I hadn't even thought about them. When I start thinking about them again, all of a sudden, in a home, we've been on this new home for three years, I have never I never locked the door. Um, no weapons in the house. I started locking, not just locking, but got bolts on the back door and uh, on the sliding glass door. And when I bought a shotgun, and I'm thinking, why? What is your? What is? That's what gave me the idea. I had this PTSD. I'm thinking, you've never lived your life being afraid of things. What? What are you so nervous about? I started thinking, you know, doing introspection. What? What? Why would you be doing this? That's when I started looking for PTSD because it, I think the only thing that's new in my psychological life is thinking about Baghdad and, and, and realizing that, that Saddam was there. That makes it even more terrifying. But by being able to look at it, back at it, with him inter, interjected into it creates a whole new way of looking at it, which is one of the healing traits for PTSD, one of the healing therapies is to be able to look at an old situation in a new way. That's one of them. So it's been very helpful. I still got my shotgun. But I'm, not, I'm not quite so so nervous about locking the doors. Um, but, uh, man, all you asked for, what you asked me for, you asked me to say something nice about one guy, and I've been talking for three hours <laughs> with Psycho Bible and Babel and every other kind of thing, right? <laughs> no, we took a great trip down a memory lane uh, that's for sure and definitely going to be looking out for that book hopefully and like you said hopefully in about two or three months uh, it'll be uh, out and ready to purchase john how can i how can i help you uh with your efforts uh, in future what can i do can i do anything on facebook yeah um i'll I could definitely reach out and, and get in touch with you and um let you know how you can you know uh, pump it up or uh, promote us or something like that. I can definitely uh, reach out uh, in the not so distant future and let you know. Well, uh, well, by doing that, uh, I'll be helping myself. So yeah, absolutely. Yep. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm grateful for you calling to you know calling me. Uh, and low wrestlers never get tired of telling. There's no story we have that's, that gets old to us. And. Uh, at the reunion down at Scott Teal's a couple of weeks ago, I heard Ronnie Garvin telling a story about his flying days. So a new audience, I've heard that story 30 times. And if it wasn't for the fact that that uh, I, I I had other people to uh, things to deal with, I would have sat down and listened to it again because sometimes something new comes up. But we just, you know, we don't get tired of it. So you've done me a favor. And if in any way, shape, or form, I believe in, uh, returning those things, and if any way, or shape, or form, um, I can do anything for you, please let me know. Um, I'm uh, I have no delusion of the grandeur. Um, proud of most of my background, but that doesn't make me any better than anybody. Uh, I'd like to share it with people, as a matter of fact. And the fact that <laughs> you you know every wrestler in the world should should want to be interviewed by you because. You don't, you're not expecting to talk. <laughs> most of the guys, most of the guys when they're telling stories, some of the people that are listening to them want to get a word in edgewise, and that's hard to do sometimes. With you, your your assignment is to ask a question and get um, your guest to talk, and as long as he's not 
totally babbling. Uh, um, uh, just keep them going, right? Yep, absolutely. Where and, should uh, we go? Well, this is where we'll, we'll uh, end it, I guess. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, I appreciate all the time, the awesome stories. I love the um, the Florida stories especially. I mean, that is a, a great era in the business that has long gone with so many great guys. So thank you so much for all the time you gave me. really appreciate all the time you gave me as well. Thank you. Well, um, I, you, you want me to add? You can edit this. You want me to add one thing about Florida? Sure. Or, yeah. yeah. You want that? All right, let me add something that just came to me. One of the great things about Florida was that so many guys that um, worked up north, like Larry Henning, for example, uh, the Sheik, the original Sheik, uh, so many guys, Dominic Danucci and uh, Tony Parisi, guys that worked in New York, a lot of guys that worked up in the cold weather countries wanted to come south for the, uh, at least a few weeks or a week or two in the in the winter and when they did if they worked in florida they could write it off as a tax you know it could make a few bucks they didn't want to work every night because it was probably a vacation but they could work a couple of nights and uh and they could write it off on their taxes it was a business trip i got to work with larry henning in jacksonville i remember at a very young age and i was not a mark but but you know i was still green as grass and you know, I had big eyes, you know, working with Larry Hen- Larry Henning because, you know, he was a big star. He and Harley had torn up, uh, done a bunch of stuff up there. And I, I did read wrestling magazines. This is a grapevine, I guess, a uh, telephone, telegraph, tele-wrestler grapevine. And, uh, uh, but you had all kinds of guys coming from up north that would be down here for uh, a few weeks. And over, you know, you're there three or four years, you might get to work with, five or six different guys every year that uh, have come with a whole different, you know, they're they're not in the territory, so they're not trying to get over. They're probably going to, you're going to beat them, but you get to work with them and get a different, see a different style. Uh, guys, talk to them in a dressing room, guys with different stories and different backgrounds. That was another great part of Florida because you didn't get it anywhere else. You didn't have territories where guys came in just for, you know, big names came in just for a week or two, you know. Uh, I didn't get that in California, for example. But in Florida, you got that. It's the only place I ever worked that you did, where you had, I mean, numerous people would come in over the course of the year of the winter of the winter months up north would come in. And that was an added benefit. You were asking me about why I enjoyed Florida. I just realized another part that I liked a lot, to be able to work with guys who... I got to I got to go over, you know. I got to beat them, which was nice, you know. It, it also created a great attitude about the business because, um, you know, I was a baby face, and it, it created the attitude that, you know, it's not it's not who's right, it's what's right. It's not no about who's a big name. It's about what's the right thing to do in a situation, and the right thing to do in a situation with me and Larry Henning and. In Jacksonville, being that I was going to be back there for the next year or whatever, and he wasn't going to be back at all, was for me to beat it. Now, a, a temperamental star might have, or it was on TV, might have said, "Well, I don't want him to pen me. You know, I want him doing DQ or count out or something." But guys like Terry said, "No, have Bob, Bob be Bob, have Bobby beat me right in the middle." And uh, so I got to see attitudes also, professional attitudes and non-professional attitudes. 
and and those were all role models. Those were all people modeling uh, kind of behavior. And boy, did that come in handy with me when I was a booker. I could talk to guys on the phone and get an idea of what kind of one of those they were, whether it was all for me or for what's not what's right, but who's right. Um, some guys were just me, 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 and instead of us. Uh, in order for in order for the whole show to work, for everything to happen, uh, for our, our little sta- our stage play, big or little, uh, every member of the cast needs to be there, and every part of the supporting uh, technology and framework and personnel needs to be a, be there and be operating at full capacity too. So everybody's necessary, and that was one of the things I learned from uh, being around guys like that. So, all right, John, I think I'm I've run out of stuff. Uh, you had enough of it? Hey, I think we got a lot of good stuff for sure. Oh, good. Uh, anytime you want to, uh, a year from now or whenever, if you want to talk some more, um, you know, we can talk about something else. I got other stuff to talk about too, but. Um, uh, I only respond to the questions you asked me. If you come up with any different ones, uh, if an interviewing anybody else comes up with, uh, uh, it doesn't have to be for an hour and a half or whatever. It can be for five, ten minutes if that's what you'd like. Please just let me know, and, and uh, I'll be glad to, to work with you. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.